Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by Spotify, which has the best podcast listening experience around. You can change your speeds. You can go check out their awesome charts. You can do whatever you want there. If you love listening to music on Spotify, I would highly encourage you to listen to podcasts on Spotify as well. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where we had another new Rewatchables podcast go up on Monday night. 40-Year-Old Virgin. Yeah, that one's up there. And then on Wednesday night, Dangerous Minds, because it is teen movie week on TheRinger.com. We got all kinds of brackets, all kinds of stories. Go to TheRinger.com or to The Ringer's Twitter feed if you want to um, break down um, every kind of teen movie possible. If you want to vote, if you want to vote what the greatest teen movie of uh, recent history was, all that stuff. Good stuff all around. Uh, coming up, a little bit of a hodgepodge podcast today. At the very top, Logan Murdoch and Raja Bell, who you would normally hear on the Monday Ringer NBA show, and they're great together. They're going to do an instant react on Dallas Clippers game five. They're basically subbing for me just for the first 15 minutes of the pod. So that'll be the first 15 minutes that you won't hear my voice. You'll hear Logan and Raja. Um, and you'll enjoy it because they're really good together. And then we're going to have, uh, me talking to Jonathan Sharks from the ringer about OKC versus Houston, uh, Ben Simmons trades, and then what the lottery looks like for 2020. And then my old friend, Seth Myers. Yeah. He's, I can't remember the first time I had him on the podcast, but, um, it's been a while. It was due for him to come on, and uh, we just catch up about a whole bunch of things. So really fun podcast ahead. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. What is popping? Logan Murdoch of the Ringer NBA live show. I am here with the curator of vibes, the former NBA player, the former Piedmont resident, mm. the former amateur wrestler, the now <laughs> media mogul Raja Bell. What is popping, bro? How you doing, man? I'm good, bro. I got my, my house shoes on. I'm chilling. It's like 1150 East Coast. It's all good. See, I'm on the best coast right now. You, you got. You see, what I'm saying you got your little yellow sweater on and stuff. You know what I mean. You got the little vibes. You you curating it right now. You got the little columns in the back and stuff. I see you out here. You you, you got the funk Wait, sway going on little... right now. Yeah, you see. Oh, okay, probably... boom. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. I okay, see yeah, it. I see yeah. it, bro. I see it. I'm just saying. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to show you that you out here doing a thing. You know okay. what I mean? Out here living up to your name. <laughs> we are out. We are here recording lives. Tap in. Shout out to everybody and Twitter and YouTube land, all the Spotify world and everything like that. We are here after the Mavericks got blown out. Mm. That was that was pretty rough, bro. I don't even know the score right now. You said it was like 150 to 106. We stopped watching. Right. It was pretty bad. Have you ever gotten your ass kicked like this before? In, no, not no. I mean, well, yes, 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 yes. It happens, right? But not, I'm not I talking don't... about in real life. I'm not talking about a fade. I'm talking about in a basketball game. <laughs> Both, yes. Um, <laughs> I, but not in a playoff game, right? Like that's kind of unique. I have, I don't remember 
playing on a team that got rocked like this. Like we, you know, 20 point, maybe 15, mm-hmm. but but this is a genuine 40 piece they got hung on them. Like I, I've never been a part of anything like that, that that I can remember. See, I know in the media how it is. We're laughing at you guys if y'all losing and stuff. We'll walk down to the to the to the um down by the locker room and stuff. We're just talking about how trash you guys are right now. That's what we're doing in the media. Pet peeve of mine, by the way. Pet peeve of mine, by the way. Like you, right before we came on, you said like these last five minutes were trash. Like they were my minutes, man. No, don't don't disrespect yourself like that. For like four years, when I came into the league, these were my minutes. All right, so I'm laughing at the terrible basketball that we just saw for the last (laughs) six minutes. Then we're going down. We're like, this team is done. What are you guys feeling like in the locker room when you get your ass kicked? How how was that for you guys? Yeah, that's a that's a shitty feeling, man. Um. You know, the good news I could say about the bubble situation is you're not going to get, um, you know, you're not going to have to travel on the end of this, right? So there's no plane ride. Like, you're not going to have to be stuck with everybody, like, commiserating over that loss for for much longer than, you know, it takes to get your showers, have your coach address the team, and then get back to the your hotel room. So that that's helpful because... You, you know, you, you, the plane rides can get kind of. But are you? Get, I'm talking about a normal service. Are you? Are you paying attention to the coach? Are you even like? Are you pissed? Are you looking uh, at your phone? What are you doing? What, no, what, you're 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 high. Everybody's locked in because you know you're you're up against it now. You're down. Okay. You know you're down two three and and most coaches understand that like when you get beat like this, there's not a whole lot that can be said after the game. Like you're going, you know, you're not going to stand up in front of me for 15 minutes because I am going to tune out. But like for, I'll give you the three minutes to make your address and say what you got to say. And then we got to get out of there. What's the phone situation like? Is it like hella text and stuff? Is it like, what are you doing? Why y'all? I didn't know y'all was this bad. Hella. Here's my favorite one. <laughs> yeah. What happened? What happened? What happened? <laughs> is that the, when did one of those texts go in, and when are you looking at those? No, they're they were they were coming in the whole game. Like as as the game started, and we and we were down on like a twenty six four run. Those started coming in. So I've got to now go through the whole text string of like forty texts uh, asking basically what happened in a, in a, in a multitude of ways. Right. So who do you text back? Oh, only fam, only family, like wife, mom, and dad, probably. Like you know, like. You're keeping it close to the vest. Ain't man, no you partners getting text back. Nah, like, nah, no, okay. nah, nah, nah. You can't get caught up in that, man. Because real talk, like LeBron is good about going into what he's called a zero dark thirty or playoff mode, whatever. Mm-hmm. You 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 got to block the noise out, man. To the best of your ability, you got to block it out. Does that mean you got two phones? Like one for the, you know, like you got two phones for the nah. one, the family, and then no, is it just nah. one? Okay, it's, it's one phone, but you're just navigating through your. Uh, you know, through 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 your calls, who you want to hit back and and who you don't want to hit back, and real like, let me segue real quick. Allow me to do this because I'm ahead, looking at my phone. You know who looks like they blocked the noise out? Who's that? And I and I think he blocked the noise out because like he shut off the comments like on his IG page and all of that, what? and he bounced back and had himself a really good game. That's that's your boy playoff P. Oh, that was pretty good, man. You you, you like should do that, this right? for a living. That was but nice. So okay, media mogul. Right. Our media mogul, Paul George, <laughs> had thirty five points, three boards, and four threes. He told you to put some respect on Palmdale. He told you to put some respect on his name. He said, "I'm not here for this pandemic P. I'm not here for this PG thirteen percent that y'all mm. was talking about." How did you How did you feel about him putting some respect on his name? Because he was trash, and we were putting we were putting dirt on his name on this Ringer NBA show that you can listen. to to every monday only on spotify but well what done. did you think about that um response from paul george no i but listen first of all um 
I, I, we weren't in the wrong for saying he wasn't play, like he was not playing well. He wasn't holding up his end of the bargain. Like it right. was, it was happening. It was playing out right in front of our eyes. But he did what I expected him to do, which was bounce back, come out clip loaded, um, really forcing the issue early to get buckets and and try to find his rhythm. And you know, it was cool that Doc supported him and was it was vocal about that. So was Kawhi. Uh, but that's what you have to do when your team needs you. Dog, they don't have a shot at being the Clippers that people thought. Um, could win a championship if, if Paul George isn't contributing. It, it doesn't have to be the thirty some every night, but it's got to be it's got to be upwards of twenty, right? Roger, I'm gonna keep it a buck. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna keep it a whole stack. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna keep it G real. I, I I don't think he has earned the playoff P moniker back. I think he got P back. I think he just uh, got the P back. Okay? That's cool. I, just, I, yeah. I don't think that I don't playoff P means over years and years and years. And I think there was a stat that he hasn't even made it past the first round in like four years. As a superstar, I, I, I'm not mad at you for that. I, I'm gonna say he's P. He, I'm gonna say Palmdale P because he put some respect on Palmdale. I'm gonna say that <laughs> he played well right. to start the, to start the game. He played, and, and I, what I liked about it was he wasn't settling to start the game. He missed some shots, but he was crashing boards. Yes. He was really active there. You could tell that that really pissed him off those first few games, and he yeah. he went he went out. He went out wild for these first part for these first games and did not play well even after the Instagram where he's like where he stuck his chest out. He still didn't play well. I'm I'm happy he's Palmdale P to me right now. Okay. Well, Palmdale P uh did and to your point what a what a what I found to be the best recipe for like slump busting uh in my NBA career right now. Clearly I wasn't scoring what what he scores, but even when I couldn't make my normal, you know, 10, 11, 12 points a game, I was off. If you just will kind of submit to the to the game and just play you know every possession and rebound the ball and hustle your tail off and play great d and just don't trip out about the scoring or lack thereof like really buy into doing everything else in the game and get yourself in a real flow um it, it usually finds its way to come back like it, the, you know the averages play themselves out percentages are what they are for a reason right so you just have to kind of let go of the fact that you're not scoring and do what you just talked about like play ball be aggressive you're not on social media, Roger Bell. I don't know if I'm going to change that. I don't know what's going to happen, but you are not at the moment on social media. And I don't remember you being on social media during your playing career. Mm-hmm. However, you have been around players with social media. How much do they pay attention to that on a day-to-day basis when you see them in the locker room? Do they care about that? How much are they looking at it? Because a lot, there's always the narrative of, I, ain't ca- I don't care about what Logan Murdoch thinks. I don't care about what the media thinks about me. Yet I always see these players on their phones, and then they're the first ones to tell me when I didn't do when I didn't write something correct. Yeah. From a player's perspective, how much do y'all pay attention to us? Um, enough, enough. Now I, I'm I'm older school, so like the era I came up in, like cats weren't on their phone. We didn't have social media. Some of my vets didn't even know what social media was. That younger generation that was coming in as I finished up, yeah, they're very aware of what what's going on in 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 their on their social media accounts and what Logan Murdoch um or myself might be saying at this point. I mean, it, it's just the way of the world, right? Like I got kids that are 12 and 13 years old and they they know more about social media than I do. They're just locked in. Do you do you think what about when you were an executive, right? When you're when you were in the front office, right. how do you tell these young guys you were in 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 Cleveland? How do you tell these young guys like Kyrie when you were there or Deion Waiters when you were there? They'll stay off of this or this is what you need to look for. Did you have any times where you had to just be like, little homie, chill, 
<laughs> no, not okay. not on not on social media. Um, okay. we we've had conversation. You know, there are different conversations that you got to have re- regarding like, you know, what people are getting into and and the timeliness of that. But not not social media, man. Most most guys most guys have a pretty good grasp of like time and place with social media. Um, mm-hmm. I, I always think less is more. I know you're building a brand and and you know it, it, everyone's out there kind of trying to create their own, but. You know, you you got to be careful on social media. So I've always advised, whenever asked by by players, uh, you know, less is more kind of on social media. You know, All right, let's transition into something that you are well versed in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called beef. <laughs> we saw a little bit of that. We saw a little bit of that in this game. We it started when Marcus Morris. I don't know his intent, but nah, it looked. It, I, don't, nah, I don't know. I can't speak for the man, nah. but it looked like he might have kind of like maybe intentionally stepped on Luka Doncic's injured ankle. He did the thing where he was like, oh, my bad. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Come here. You know what I'm saying? I didn't mean to do that. But it looked like he may have stepped on it intentionally. And then mm-hmm. on the next possession, mm-hmm. Tim Hardaway, the Mavericks, winds up on Paul George. Gets ball, but also gets a whole bunch of face. A lot of face. We've both been around the league. We both know the code. When somebody comes at you or comes at your teammate, what you got to do? Yes. Was that fair game with what, what, what Hardaway did? Uh, I appreciate I appreciate his willingness to step up to bat for a teammate. Every every player like Luca needs um somebody that has his back. Like you need a Kendrick Perkins on the squad. You got to have somebody there to someone that's not like necessarily a star. Correct. Someone there right. to hold that down. I'm gonna check in the game just to get this foul, and then we can get him out. Right. Um, my only problem with Tim was, and it's really not a problem, but like, go ahead and get, go ahead and get Morris. Like, don't, don't, like Palmdale P wasn't even really involved in that, right? So if if we're gonna if we're gonna handle that business for Luca, then it's got to be the appropriate like perpetrator of the of the crime, and that wasn't the case. So that was my only beef with it. But I kind of like, you know, like the Mavs who even I question maybe a little bit of their toughness and and stuff like that. You know, I like you standing up. You got to stand up. Wait, so for the record, you think that Marcus Morris stepped on his ankle? I, I think that it was inadvertent. Look, the the, the, the wait, wait, wait. What'd you say, sir? What'd you say, sir? I think, I, think I thought it was inadvertent. I thought so it was th- so you didn't think it was intentional. I did not think it was intentional. It was too look. I've seen Marcus Morris bug out like when he hit when he hit uh what's the boy's name in the head with the ball? Like he he like um what's the cast name? Justin Justin Anderson, is that his name? Mm-hmm. He kind of tapped him on the head with the ball, but this particular play, like there's nothing else going on around you. Like Luca's about to be the primary ball handler. Everybody else is in the in the front court. Why, like, why would you choose that wide open space with every camera lens in the world on you to try to step on that man's bad ankle? Like, I don't buy that. I feel like you can tell a lot about a team by the response that they give after after there's funk with somebody. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If 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 I'm not talking about the players that are on the floor, off the floor. And we can get to that in a second because it, something just came up to mind that I need to ask you about. All right, about that. But I feel like you could tell a lot about a team by who's ready for the smoke on the floor. Were you, do you approve of the smoke that was happening on the floor in in response to all this beef going on? What's what smoke? What what are you like? What, what you talking when, about? When someone goes at your star player, the other dudes come and protect them. Were you was that an A plus or what, what grade would you give for sticking up for a teammate? Yeah, I thought that was a, uh, with what you can get away with now in the NBA. Right. Like mm-hmm. I thought it was, I thought it was a solid A. Like Clippers were outraged. Um, you just you're not going to get a, away with a lot of well, 
You talking about what happened to Luca, or are you talking about what happened to Paul? Let's do it two separate instances, bro. So I give what happened to Luca if again, and I think most Mavericks thought kind of like I did that did it. You couldn't tell whether that was on purpose or not. So having said that, um, I'd probably still give it an A because okay. maybe you know Timmy came down and did what he had to do. Sure. Um, quick, quick Tim Junior story. Let me sidebar real quick. Uh, we're playing in a gym down here in, in uh, Miami High, hot gym. Tim Junior is probably about nine years old. Uh, okay. Tim Tim Senior is is locking horns with me that day, right? And he's a little older, but we're getting after it. Okay. They beat us, so a ball comes down out of the net, and I catch it on a volley, and I kick the shit out of it, and it goes. <laughs> It goes screaming and hits Tim Senior in the face. Like I'm like, oh god, dang! I gotta fight. That's Tim right before now. you know you gotta fight. Like you I gotta know fight him now. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't mean to, but I gotta <laughs> fight him. And Tim was cool as a fan, but from behind, I feel like these little like fists beating me in the back. And I turned around and it was Junior like beating the hell out of my back. Right. So I'm not su- I'm not surprised that he got down for Luca today. Um, this and then is from- Tim Hardaway Junior and Senior, by the way, Junior and Senior. Yes. Um. And then from the from the Clippers standpoint, like I think, what a you know, G! I don't have kids, but I, I I hope if I have a son that he just does that for him, just rides for me like that. Absolutely, it ain't gonna hurt you. You know, he's a nine year old, ain't gonna hurt the person, but I need him to ride. Yeah, not my dad. You ain't gonna yeah. get down on my dad like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was it was it was cool. It's okay, okay. It was cool. I, and, and the quick tangent aside, though, mm-hmm. you were if I'm not mistaken, you were a part of the a, a brawl that kind of changed all this shit that changed all of this. Yeah. In the, in the 2007 playoffs against the Spurs, some bullshit. Tell me it about was... that. Tell me about that story and your involvement mm-hmm. and what you thought about that whole shebang. Well, it was, first of all, I didn't know this at the time, but when Robert Ori checked Steve Nash into the, like into the scores table, mm-hmm. Steve was selling a call there. Right. So, um, I just saw it out of the corner of my eye and thought like he had really got checked hella hard into the scores table. So I ran over, um, and Rich wasn't the greatest move because then two more people ran over. Then, you know, if you know Boris Diaw, right? Like I always tell this story, Boris Diaw would be more likely to run on that court to protect Tony Parker than he would be to run out there and fight Tony Parker. Like, do you know what I mean? Like they're yeah. that tight. So, that was just ridiculous that the league took that stance. And Amari took like two steps on and then got back across the line. So for them to suspend uh, those two dudes in a series, I think that like the NBA deserved to see that year. I thought it was pretty, it was pretty, uh, it was in pretty poor taste. But, but, but like dog, like I was saying before when, you know, Sean, before we came on was asking like, would, 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 Marcus gets suspended for stepping on. Like the league's gonna do what the league wants to do. Mm-hmm. They sus- they they suspended me for a play where like I fell down and my legs kind of went up and Andre Bargnani was standing over me. Like he got called for offensive foul and on film they thought I kicked him in the balls and Andrea was like, no, he didn't do that. Yeah. And they they suspended me because they couldn't be sure that I didn't intentionally try to do it. And then on the flip side, like Bruce Bowen kicks Amari Stoudemire like kicks his leg out from behind him in a game and they don't suspend him because they can't be sure he did it on purpose. So they're going to do what they want to do. Yeah. Shout out Sean. You are video producer who may or may not be on a, on a future segment of pour out some liquor with us on Mm. the ringer NBA show on Monday. Got to get that plug in. I want to quickly pivot to this. Paul George said the quote, the bubble got the best of me. I was in a dark place. I really wasn't here. 
I checked out. Word? This is right after this game right now. This is right after. This is your this is your second best player. That's yeah, on that's the team. Not, that's not quick good. reaction, Roger Bell. Wait, before not, we get the quick reaction, Roger yeah. Bell. I'm gonna say how I feel about this. Go, yeah, go ahead, please. This is your second best player on the team. A championship contending team. This is only the first round in a series that you were favored in. And you're already checked out. At least for a stretch that you just admitted. That can't happen, bro. That can't happen. Or if it does happen, you cannot admit it, in my opinion. I, what do you think about this? Because I, 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 I'm I, just now getting this and I'm trying to figure this out while you're here. I'm kind of flabbergasted. Yeah, Roger, look, I, I couldn't have said that much better myself. Uh, today's athlete, um, and as media members and fans, like we want honesty, right? Like we want you to bury your soul. We do want you to be candid. Yes, that's true. Keep that shit to yourself, bro. Nobody wants to hear that Paul Pierce, the second highest. I mean, Paul, I said it. I did it again. I did it on Monday. Um, nobody wants to hear Paul George is is checked out. He's the second best player on the team, dog, second highest. Play. No one wants to hear that. Like that, dog, like again, I, we want to hear your candid vulnerability. Everyone wants to know that. Keep that shit to yourself. I, I will say this, though, and I just, it just came to mind. We don't know also what no, he's going through. No. We don't no, also know no, what he's going through. We no, don't know. We don't know no. the mental side of this, Roger. Keep we don't it to know. yourself. It's, you can have it. Like you you said it yourself. Like, dog, you could be in a dark place. Like you could you can have personal stuff going on. And all of that are all of those would be very valid reasons for you to not be producing. Like you're a human being. I'm saying Keep it to yourself. Don't nobody want to hear it. So what if, what if he says it to you, though? Like, what if he's like, man, I just checked out. Like, you're his teammate. What if he says that to you? Oh, listen, then we, you know, look, let's let's grab a bite. Let's let's crack a bottle. Like, let's talk it out. Let's try to get you to a healthy place. Where, also, mental health health is, a, you nah. know, it's, it's a thing in this game. You know, somebody like Kevin Love, who you've been around. Yes. That DeMar DeRozan guys like that. It is something of the psyche, especially in a global pandemic. I just came to mind. I'm just like, damn, you right. Time, you know, what time I mean? and place, time and place though, bro. Like I have no, like DeMar DeRozan, um, uh, um, you know, Kev super brave, man. Like yeah. braver, braver than me. Like kudos to, to you, like, um, for being strong enough one to navigate it and then being strong enough too to come out and, and, and bear your soul about it. I'm, I'm just saying like, as a, as an excuse after the game, still in the middle of the competition, like you don't. If in fact it is, you don't want to be giving. Is people that what you any. tell him? Is that what you tell him as your teammate? You're right next to him. You know, we have to scrum around him, and you're right next. You're like, hey, that's what. You, are you behind us? Like, oh, oh. <laughs> no, not right now, bro. <laughs> did did this game? Because you know, you know how I've been. On, I've been very bullish on the Clippers. Mm -hmm. You know how I feel about the Clippers right now. I think that this game showed me something a, a little bit more heart. This was the game that I've been trying to get out of the Clippers. Just something like, show me, man. Like, right. I need you to, like, they've been talking about sticking their chest out. They did the thing at Summer League with, with Pat Bev, and they're walking in front of LeBron. They're like, this is our town. We, we run L.A., L.A. our way. And, but they carry themselves like a team that's been there before, but in a bad way. Right. In a way that like we've won three, four champions. We can afford. We're good. This is our this was the first game where I kind of saw them just be like, OK, y'all got us messed up. We're going to make a statement. Yeah. Happy to see that from them. 
Does this mean anything, though? Does this mean anything? Um, yeah, it it, it means ex- exactly what tonight was. You're winning three two, and then that's a wrap. Like you have to you have to double down on that, right? Like that's you're looking for consistent effort. These are these are best of seven game series, bro. So if you're gonna show up, you know, as great as you are as a team when you have it, um, if you're only gonna have it one or two nights in a series, then nah, it don't it, it really doesn't mean anything. Now, if they can figure out a way to start stringing them together like that, Logan, then you know, we're talking about a, a, a different animal but like you're lakers right like I, I, let me ask you the question i know we're not talking about the lakers but like we right now you just did a good job good job great segue I bet that so like who who do you feel more secure in 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 like they've got it figured out and they've got it rolling lakers the lakers i mean also they have the built they, they just have a lot going for them right now and i, I just feel like they figured it out before the clippers right now yeah but, the, but i'm now I'm convinced that we're going to get this Western Conference Finals now. I just see that that's happening. I had a little bit of doubt after after game four. I had a little bit of doubt, you know, after right. Luka, won, after Luka beat them without without KP, without all these things happening. But now every I feel like everything's about to go as planned. Sorry, Sean, Sean, who is a Houston <laughs> Rockets fan. I apologize, bro, but is what it is. I think that we're still going to be set up for a Conference Finals. Well, you, you, you'll be right if, like, and the Clippers don't even have to do what they did tonight. Tonight, tonight was tonight was like their A plus effort, man. You had like everybody cooking, but that that energy that you saw, man, like I, you know, they kept panning to their bench, like how fired up the the bench was, and you could feel them just contesting everything. They were running people off of every look, making you know, putting the hand up, just making it just a little bit more uncomfortable than you wanted it to be as a shooter. And that effort, if they're gonna keep showing up with that you're gonna you're gonna get them in the lakers and that effort like if they're playing like that you'll get a good series out of them in the Lakers. are they locked in now are the clippers locked in now i don't know because they because all year long you would have thought they'd have been locked in and they weren't locked in right like they were dr jekyll and mr the thing is, though, they're only locked in against the lakers that's the only time that they're locked in now they need to get there first and i believe that they're going to get there but come on well it may not even matter right because if you you know if you have a banged up luca um you don't have chris Dapps. Um, I, I never, I, you know, the Mavs have been a good story, but the reality is like, if Chris Tavs don't play, Luca has to score 40 plus, And they, he's just not going to be able to do that on the leg. They were trapping him tonight, getting the ball out of his hands. They're not, mm-hmm. I wouldn't imagine Doc's just going to watch Luca score 40 for the, yeah. for the rest of the series. So I think it's probably a wrap. Yeah. Okay. So we got some YouTube comments. One from Matt Skizzy, who says, is that Logan Murdoch or Gerald Henson? Gerald Henderson. <laughs> Gerald Henderson. He was my rook, bro. Yes, sir. Was he at it? Yes, sir. Word. Word. Yeah, yeah. How was that? Was he was he cool? Was he nah, it was cool. Was he yeah, it was cool. Right. I got I got traded halfway through that season. So another YouTube comment. Is that Rajah Bell or a skinny Jared Dudley? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um <Okay. laughs> Okay. Let's switch, let's switch gears, man. We got to uh we saw another great game. Jazz Nuggets. Yeah. The Nuggets responded, bro. They won 117-107 to stave off elimination. Such a cliche line, but they staved off elimination. They did stave uh, it. Uh, <laughs> going into a game, a game six, Jamal Murray balled 42 points, eight rebounds. Oh. I'm just gonna go full cliche right now. Out dueling. Jamal, not Jamal, outdueling Donovan Mitchell, who had 30 <laughs> points and five rebounds. Yeah. That uh look, that 
Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I look, look like you muted yourself for a second. No, no, no. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Oh. I, I just, I, I just, I, I see both of these guys are just coming into their own. It reminded me of what were you going to say? I, I think you had something to say. What's up? I, no, I was going to ask you who, uh, like, of the two of those, right? Because I think their trajectory kind of eh, same, same kind of trajectory, right? I, I don't know their ages, but like. I would say same thing. I, I would put Donovan over him right now. Donovan yeah. is is definitely in the yeah, he was in a rookie year conversation. I'm putting Donovan ahead of ahead of Jamal right now. Okay. You know, he has playoffs. I mean, they both have playoffs. So I'm still putting Don I'm putting Donovan on there, right? I got now. you. I got you. I got you. I think that um especially what Donovan has done in the bubble as well. I think Donovan, we've talked about this in past shows, is one of the um one of the unsung stars in this in this game right now. Um, one thing that I, I did want to want to pick your brain about though is Kenny Smith said on the on the Turner broadcast, he said this about all young players is that they had this off season within the season, these three months off to get better, and mm -hmm. they're taking these leaps. I think I've seen that with Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell, also Luka Doncic. Have you seen that though? Like, I, I, have have you? Are, is that something that you've seen? You know, during this bubble? No. Okay. I don't see, know. What, see, I don't listen. See, okay. I, I know, but like real, real talk. Like I, I, I could see, I could see like your your role guy, um, that's a young player coming in and looking a lot sharper in his defined role. But like those guys, I always felt like Donovan Mitchell, Jamal Murray, like uh, Luca. They, I mean, they might have gotten better at something, but I don't know if they got appreciably better. Those cats will drop fifty on you like on any given night. So but I it's think about the, consistency, though, Raja. Um, yeah, but like you saw Luca tonight, like it wasn't. I mean, okay, you know, like you know, I mean, hey, I know he's injured and everything like that, but like it wasn't, it, it wasn't the Luca that we were were crowning like the face of the NBA two nights right. ago. So, uh, but I, you could make a case for that, and it is rare that you get you know, that type of time off in the middle of a season, it gives you great opportunity to kind of go back and say, all right, this is the way people were playing me. Um, this is, this is where I struggled within this offense. Like for us to be a better team, mm -hmm. this is where I got to get better in this offense and really attack that. And I'm sure guys did that. So that, I mean, that probably is why we're seeing such a great uh, offensive display, like in the bubble. You know what I mean? Roger, you almost crushed the topic and then you brought it back. So I can only respect it. You only like you were like stepping on a topic like Logan, you're stupid. What are you talking oh. about? And then you brought it back. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I can respect that. I'm not into crushing that. dreams, bro. I don't like you almost that. did though. You already crushed my dream a long time ago. You guys can go to the to the past episodes and check that out. But I want to talk about shooting in the bubble though. And I think that's an interesting topic. I want to I want to shout out TD for for our producer for bringing this up. When we've seen in this bubble it, it's there's no fans mm -hmm. it's kind of like a controlled scrimmage with a lot of people right a controlled scrimmage with stakes yep um and with that shooting has gotten a lot better at least from my vantage point what do you think that is i think because you know we've seen loud arenas we've seen uh how an arena and fans can affect how a role player and even superstars shoot do you think that that is nullified by no fans. Well, excuse me, Lil Wayne is in the bubble sometimes. Steph was sometimes in a bubble, like virtually mm -hmm. and stuff. But you know, with the in the bubble, do you think that that is affected at all? I, yeah, I think it's definitely affected, um, or or hasn't affected that many people, right? Like the distraction of the fans and the shit going on you in the arena um, isn't there anymore. Most guys like once you've been in the league for a few years, that all becomes kind of white noise to you anyway. Like it shouldn't mm -hmm. really bother you, but 
the reality is like, you know, you are human and there's a lot of shit going on. There are people to look at. There's, you know, sites and sand. There's all what's kinds the of wildest, stuff. So, what's the wildest shit somebody's told you um, from a fan? What is the wildest? Oh man, I though I don't know. I don't oh, know. I come heard, on. No, I really on, don't. Bro. It, it come all on. runs. It, it, first of all, you put me on the spot with that. Like I'd have to get into like some real depth of thought for that one. Um, what is the wildest thing? You're doing a know, thing man. where you're like, no, oh you, man, I blocked all no, the noise. No, no, Come there, on. I blocked out a lot of noise. I was good at that. You know, I, LA was always wild because people told me they were going to kill me. Like, <laughs> In Los Angeles? Yeah, like people, okay, the wildest thing probably happened on like Rodeo. Um, we were at the Wilshire. We were there for Christmas and I had my wife, um, my parents with me. We were walking down the street and um, somebody yelled at me and called me like a B-A-M-F or like rolling down the street. Now, it wasn't like a, a wild out-of-pocket thing to say. Like that's that was not cool. a wild out-of-pocket thing to say in front of your wife and during in fr- Christmas? But that's the thing. In front of my okay. wife during Christmas, like Christmas, the day before Christmas, it was kind of wild. Okay. All right. I meant in the, in the, bu- I mean, in the, in the arena, but like that was, that was wild too. Um, do yeah. you think in, in this, in this bubble though, <laughs> right? do you think that you would have shot, be- shot better with this or do you think it might've threw you off? Um, I think I would have shot better. Look, first of all, I know that venue, man. Like, my kids play in that that uh, Orlando wide world of sports all the time, like AAU tournaments. Mm-hmm. And, like, when you hear guys talk about shooters, like gyms and stuff like that, rims have a feel, man. Some real rims are tight. Like yeah. when you when you when you touch that rim up, that ball is always like cascading off. Some, some rims, are bouncy. Some are bouncy. Some have a little bit of give to them, and like you feel like if you just get a piece of that rim, you can rattle them home. You know, like nets are really important. Like some some are like nice long like shooting nets where they and then others are kind of like like those, right? But so yeah. it's all it's all personal preference. And then the other thing are like the one thing that I found to throw me off in different arenas, and this was way way back when I first came in the league, where the cavernous buildings like. The um, old Alamo Dome, mm-hmm. when that depth stadiums, perception yeah. started to kick in, right? Like the Carrier Dome, when we play in there, like yeah. those things used to jack me up. So the NBA has done a good job of creating a small, um, good depth perception, like with the screens behind the stuff. And then, you know, it looks like they got some soft rims, man. And then you subtract the sound and all of the rest of the craziness going on. That's when I feel like anything can happen. They're basically on a sound stage. But, um, <laughs> All right, let's let's end on this, man. Giannis right, just won Defensive Player of the Year award. Now he has a chance to be the first player since Hakeem Olajuwon in 1994 to sweep the MVP and Defensive Player of the Year awards. Mm. And our producer TD made sure of this. You saw this in the pre, in the pre-show meeting. That would mean he would the last two people to sweep if Giannis does this would be Nigerian. Shout out mm. to all, all the Nigerian homies. Shout out. No doubt. If that happens. No doubt. Also, another person that did this, there's only three people that have done this if Giannis does it. Michael Jordan also swept it. He did not win a title. He did that in 88, though. He swept and had MVP and Defensive Player of the Year award. Do you think Giannis can sweep? Um, yeah, I had picked, I picked. Milwaukee. Um, I don't like the way they're playing in the bubble, though, bro. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I don't like what I've seen out of them. The NBA clearly doesn't like what they've seen out of them because they give us some shitty slots, like, to watch their games, bro. It's pretty bad. But, they would be on NBA TV under normal circumstances. Right? Yeah, right, 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 right. But, um, it's, no, I don't. I don't. I'm changing. Like, I, oh. I thought. I don't. I don't think he will. Uh-uh. 
And I still, he's my he's my favorite player. Like we did this, this segment about picking like somebody to start your franchise. Like I'm picking Giannis, but so you don't, I don't think he's gonna get the MVP? I'm sorry, no. Wait, I thought you meant win the championship. No, 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 no. This it's the sweep, the defensive player of the war. That lock, yeah, he's a lock. He's a lock. Okay, okay, okay. He's I was like, lock. oh, okay, all right. He's a lock. Where you that at? That was the question. No, he's a lock. I don't know if he could have got. I don't know if he should have gotten defensive player of the year award. Oh, but oh. who who would have got that? There's a man by the name of Anthony Davis. Stop, bro. Stop. There's a name. Okay. There's a man by the name of Anthony Davis who balled out defensively and carried the 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 Lakers defense, sir. <sighs> Go ahead, yeah, state your case, sir. I'm, I'm not gonna, there's no case. Right, I feel like state. you want to like, fade right now. I don't, yeah. don't want to do this. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's just, really late, right? Like just way past my bedtime. You but you're like you over here, like I'm cranky. Like, yeah, you're I'm cranky, cranky right now. All right, all right. Um, so. No, he had a great defensive year, man. But that's the best defensive team in the league, and he was the best defender on the best defensive team in the league. I feel like. I, I mean, I don't know. Am I wrong for feeling like that? Agree to disagree. <laughs> what, the Lakers were the second best defensive team in the league, right? Fair enough. I'm just, okay, my bad. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, man, let's wrap on that. Be sure to watch the Monday edition of the Ringer NBA show with me, myself, Logan Murdoch, and Raja Bell. Look at our podcast on Spotify and wherever else you get podcasts. We're here every Monday. Be sure to tune in on the Ringer NBA show. Be sure to tune in to all our Ringer podcasts, all of them worldwide, wherever you consume podcasts. And um, we'll see did you we, next time, man. Did, did we get our name yet, though, bro? Like, have we figured that out? Also, we have not. That's yes, a, thank yes. you. Good, yo, good job. Man, with that's the third okay. time you've had a great segue. All right. We also need some help from you guys. We need a name. We have a list of names that we will put on the on the Twitter sphere for you to pick. Also, if you guys want to choose a name for us and we like it, we might pick that too. So tap in. I think that that uh, I have Twitter. So, uh, Roger does not have social media. He'll probably be doing calls and stuff. He'll probably be knocking <laughs> on doors or something like that. I don't know what he's going to do to try to crowdsource for names. <laughs> but we're going to figure this out. So help us get a name and tap into the Ringer NBA show. This has been the Ringer NBA show live after dark. Tap in. We'll see you next time. All right. This is Bill again. Thanks to Logan and Raja for that little recap of Mavs clips. Hey, before we get to Jonathan Charks, I want you to keep playing fantasy basketball during the playoffs with our ultimate hoops ringer contest. There's a fan duel contest every day. There are playoff games, $5 entry fee per contest. And if you win your day, you get a ticket to the leaderboard series during the NBA Finals where all the winners will compete for a share of 50K cash, ringer swag, and to be deemed the sole survivor of the Ultimate Hoops ringer. There's still time to enter contests every day, basically, for a chance to get into the leaderboard series during the finals. What are you waiting for? Learn more and enter at fanduel.com slash hoops ringer. Age and location restrictions do apply. Let's bring in Sharks. All right, we're taping this section. It is noon PT on Tuesday. So if anything goofy happens, like it gets announced Russell Westbrook is out for the next two rounds or something like that, don't blame us. Uh, from the ringer, Jonathan Sharks is here. I want to talk about OKC Houston first. You wrote about it for the ringer this week. But um, fascinating series where Houston is up 2 nothing. Everybody starts shifting into the, oh my God, how are they going to match up with the Lakers? They look amazing. The defense, all that stuff. OKC was like plus 800 to win this series, something like that. You could have gotten really good value in them. They scrap back. They pull game three out, which could have gone either way. Then in game four, they take care of business down the stretch. Harden starting to look worn out because of the immortal Lou Dort. 
and there's no sign of Westbrook. Um, how concerned should you be if you're a Rockets fan right now? I think very concerned. So for me in this series, I was so upset at Oklahoma City in the first two games because they're playing Steven Adams, they're playing Nerlens Noel. There's just no real role for them in this series. And I think in game four, you saw in crunch time, they went to three-point guards, Lou Dort, Gallinari. That is a tough lineup for, for Houston to guard. Like, they're playing small ball with them now. I was shocked that it took them until game three to realize that the Gall and Gallinari at center, I think, has only played like 11 minutes total. But yeah. I thought that could be their lineup of, of death for this series just because... It does all the things you would want to do against Houston's defense. You broke down on the on the ringer yesterday about um, the way to beat Houston's defense isn't like more size, isn't to, it's actually with speed because once you get by the first guy, there's nobody there. And I don't mm -hmm. you think the Clippers have a little bit of the same problem as unbelievable as the Clippers are? There's really no second person there waiting for anybody once you get by them. But I think with Houston, it's even more glaring. What'd you see on that end? For sure. I think we talked like with Schroeder. Schroeder's just too fast for those guys. If you spread out the defense, let Schroeder attack. Like with Harden, right? Everyone says, oh, Harden, post him up. He's so small. Like, no, he's a freaking tank. Harden doesn't move yep. side to side. Get him in a screen, attack him off the dribble. I think end of game three, you saw that Chris Paul went right by him for that gambling shot for SGA. It was just straight speed. I think like with Houston, they're a small team that wants you to play big. If you play small against them, you've got a chance especially without Westbrook. He's really the X factor for them, obviously. Yeah, and I, I felt like I stayed away from this series from a gambling standpoint because I, I just kind of wanted to see it. And I saw those first two games, and as good as Houston looked, for some reason, I really liked OKC in game three because I thought, well, they're obviously not going to keep doing what they're doing. It didn't work. And I still really liked the possibility of them with the three guards because we've seen Schroeder, you know, have, have success against Houston in the past. And in general... I remember when they traded for him, not to toot my own horn here, although I'm about to. Hey, it's your podcast. Do it. <laughs> I'm wrong a lot. I'm the first one to admit I'm wrong a lot. Although the, the, our staff with how we aligned on the Luka Doncic pick and that draft and all that, I think we'll go down in immortality is one of the great I mean, calls. That was, by that, a that was easy money to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> that was not a hard we, call. We can talk about that later. Um, the Schroeder thing never made sense to me. OKC basically gets them for this Carmelo contract that they had no idea what to do with. It was, tw it was like 28 million bucks. They were over the tax. It was a complete disaster. Nobody else wanted it. And Atlanta's like, cool, here's Schroeder. Um, we just want to get rid of him. Uh, we'll take the 28 million from Carmelo. We'll take a shitty pick. And everybody's like, oh man, Atlanta thinking ahead. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I like Schroeder. I, I think he's a gamer. I He used to kill the Celtics. Why in this league do people just get shoved aside like they're not good? Like, here's a case where, yeah, he's he's overpaid. There's some things you'd want to work on, but he was super young when he came into the league. Why did people give up on this guy? I think it's just about finding the right role. I think people looked at Schroeder and said, if he's your best player, if he's your point guy running your offense, there's a ceiling on your team. He gets to OKC, it's like, okay, you're the sixth man. And he's really found the right role for himself. Like, I would say he was probably the sixth man of the year this year. He's been awesome. Yeah, I voted for him second. It's weird that Atlanta was trying to, you know, obviously focused on Trey Young, trying to figure out what this new identity could be and missed the part where it actually would have been cool to have Schroeder on that team. And if you're, yeah, I think if you're going for space and shooting, that's a nice guy to have with Trey Young at least a little bit of the time. I, I thought the I whole think thing was weird. 
They were concerned about Schroeder's influence on Trey Young. They were like, if Trey Young's here, will Schroeder want the ball? Because they, they brought in Jeremy Lin that year. They were like, Jeremy Lin, that's a good guy, solid Christian. You know, he's not going to be in the way of, of Trey Young. Whereas if you have Schroeder, he's like, this is my team still. I think that was their concern. I think people overthink that sometimes. I think Schroeder's concern was, can I just be on a good team? If you have him on a shit team where he's the best guy going for his yeah. own stats, he's going to look bad. Like most of the, most of the guys in the league are going to look weird in that situation. Anyway, I don't want to belabor him. The guy that we should be talking about. People are saying Luca might be the best player in the league. Kawhi, LeBron. In my opinion, Lou Dort is right up there. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know whether he's the best player in the league, whether he's the fifth best, but he's in the conversation now. What, what do you see from Lou Dort? Man, he's a beast, man. He's like a new, he's like a new Andre Robertson. Like he can't shoot to save his life, but man, he can guard. And like Harden doesn't like playing against him. He's just so strong. Like Harden's usually more strong, stronger than guys. Dort's a freaking brick wall. I'm not gonna go did, through him. Did you see the Dort stats against Harden where Harden Basically, he's in the mid to low 30s when Dort's guarding him, and he's like 57% with everybody else on the Thunder. And you can see it because Dort's that guy when you're playing pickup, you don't want any part of. You're like, oh, this guy. Oh, man. I, My, I do think for suck. Houston, like, that's the one problem that having a big man. If you got like a Steven Adams, he would screen Dort for Harden, right? Get him off Harden. But they have no big to get Dort off him. Everyone's, you know, not that, no seven footers. So Rousseau and I talked a little bit about Houston almost being like an NFL team where they're riding this specific gimmick. The more you see it, the more you can kind of figure it out. But you can get discombobulated at it, especially the, the for one game or the first couple games of a series. But the more you see it, the more you go, oh, we'll just do this. I felt like Chris Paul was starting to figure that out even during game three and then again in game four and, and figuring out when to assert himself, when not. Do you think that the curse of what Houston is trying to do is that over the course of two weeks, the more you see it, the more you get used to it? it like, are they ever going to get past that in your opinion? So I think for me, what Houston's doing, I think like they don't have that much talent on their roster, right? Like who's their best player taller than 6'6"? It's probably Jeff Green. Like yeah. they're really counting on Jeff Green. He's on his, I think he's on his eighth team in six years. And he's like so important for them. To me, for Houston, they've never had like a big wing or like a six foot eight guy. There's no Draymond, right? There's no like other player who can make offense for Harden who is any kind of size. So I think they're always at a disadvantage, right? They, have, they don't even have a Gallinari. They have no big guy who can score or create offense. And that's, I think, in a long series, those kind of players become more and more valuable. I think they were hoping Covington would be that guy. And he showed flashes of it in the regular season, but I think uh, in the playoff series, not as much. What's interesting, you look at the stats. Gordon is the only, so it's only through four games. Gordon's the only one who's just sucked. He's mm -hmm. seven for 34 from three, which is, you know, as we know with threes, they can come and go. He might go 10 for 15 in the next game. But then you look at the rest of it. Jeff Green's 13 for 27 from three. House is 11 for 28. Tucker is 11 for 25. Covington's 8 for 20. And Macklemore is 7 for 17. So if I'm looking at those numbers and I'm Houston, and I know they didn't hit threes in game four, that's going to happen. You're going to have the playoff games where they don't go in. But in general, it's like we're shooting the ball pretty well. Harden's not, we're not getting an A plus or even an A, but it's it's probably been a B plus so far. 
and it's two to two and the other team has all the momentum. What is our move? What do we do with, if Westbrook's not coming back? And I don't really think they have a move. It's just basically like, let's keep shooting threes. That's who we are. And let's kind of hope they go in as we've seen over and over again with this team and with that mindset in general, the longer a playoff series goes on when there's wear and tear, when there's pressure, um, when, you know, the stakes just feel higher and higher each game, those threes don't go in as easily and you need other things. Do you feel like this is just the curse of that team or am I overthinking it? I would say it's like this, like Houston is designed to win grind them out series with defensive players. And then you have James Harden score 35 points, right? But if Houston can't defend, and I think they really can't defend OKC small lineups. They don't have that many other scoring options, right? Like really, what is Covington and Tucker going to do but shoot threes? They're not going to dribble and drive, not going to create for others. There's not a lot of offensive dynamism on the squad outside of Harden, Gordon, Westbrook. So I think they're kind of limited in that respect. So they have to play good defense. The problem they're having now is OKC. OKC is like, we can score on you too. This is going to be a shootout. If it's a yeah. shootout of a series, Houston's got Harden, obviously. Gordon's hit or miss. You got Jeff Green is like a very important player now. And that's always risky to count on Jeff Green. Austin Rivers, like, yeah, OKC has four guys who get points. <laughs> OKC has Chris Paul, SGA, Schroeder, Gallinari. That's four legit weapons. Houston only really has three if Westbrook doesn't come back. So to me... It's going to have to be either Westbrook comes back or Harden gets 40, 45 points. It's interesting. OKC right now, and it's only been four games, but they basically have four games at 19 points and up. And Chris four Paul players, is the yeah. highest at yeah. 21 and a half. Um, yeah, four guys. So they've stumbled on, on something good here. The guy who has not gotten going really yet is Gallo. And Gallo... Even, you know, his stats aren't that bad. He's gotten to the, I always look at free throws with him. Cause I like mm -hmm. when he gets to the line and he is 25 for 25 from the free throw line in general. Um, all the, all the good guys on OKC are really good, uh, free throw shooters, which I think helps them in these crunch time games. I think that's why they've been an effective crunch time team, but Gallo is the X factor. Yeah. And he's somebody that I feel like I like him more than most. I always felt like he was undervalued. I got to watch him in person on the Clippers and just, I enjoyed how competitive he is. He's not, he's not a puss. Like he's, he, he gets mm -hmm. in there. He's a little feisty. He kind of enjoys the moment. He'll take big shots. And if he gets going and they can get through this series and you start thinking Lakers in round two, I think he becomes the key guy for the next round for them because their guards are going to be able to create some stuff. And you know, that with the Lakers backcourt, what a disaster that is, um, yeah. where Caruso is this hugely important guy for them. So they'll be able to do some one-on-one -on -one stuff. But then if Gallo just gets destroyed by Anthony Davis, it's not going to matter. What do you, what do you see from Gallo? Gallo? I like, we were just talking about like, he's just very versatile, right? He's not a 6'10 guy who just shoots threes. He's hard to guard because he can do everything. He's a very well-rounded player. And yeah, I think he's, a, he's got a ton of game. His question is going to be, and another series is his defense, right? Because he's guarding yeah. Anthony Davis. Like, that's a really big ass to guard Anthony Davis or Danilo Gallinari. It's turned out amazing for this Lakers team. You got We're going into the playoffs and we're like, holy shit, what a terrible draw for these guys to get Portland. This is... This is like a, such a yeah. frisky eight seed and Portland has this dude who is going to go into the series thinking he's the best guy. This is like, what a pain in the ass this series is going to be. 
then Portland wins game one. It's like, holy shit. And then the Lakers just completely destroy them and do all the things we thought they were going to do. Lillard looks exhausted. McCollum's got a broken bone in his back. No Zach Collins. They're relying on Carmelo to like astonishing degrees. Mara Hazonia is playing. Um, you yeah. just going down the line. They're playing Nurkic and Whiteside together. They're like, this series has been over for two games. For sure. So they get that gift. And now in this next series, Houston with Westbrook, I don't know when he's coming back or what his condition is going to be. Houston has no chance against the Lakers without Westbrook. And then this OKC team where, you know, they can throw Adams, little Gallinari, a little Noel, but for the most part would get overpowered and it would really come down to, could their guards take the series over the Chris Paul thing, things like that. But I would say, wouldn't you say, even though I don't love this Lakers team, that this is a pretty easy road to them to round three now? For sure. I mean, I think the Davis matchup is huge for them. And they're asking Lou Dort to guard LeBron. Like, maybe you can do it. That's a big ask, obviously. And then the Clippers are struggling in round one. If the Clippers lose, the Lakers are sitting pretty. Right. So, all right, back to the Houston series for one second. Harden just needs to have two incredible Harden games, and, yeah. and this is it. I don't see another roadmap for them to win the series. And I, I thought Harden looked pretty tired by the end of uh, game four. But, you know the thing that sucks about getting betting it's Houston, whether you're doing it with your money or just thinking like, Oh, okay. So he's going to advance is then Harden has the 55 point game or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. let's say they lose this series. And now we're talking about dating back to 2013, a litany of playoff, like, Oh man. Oh yeah. That sucked too. And, uh, that like, at what point do we just accept Harden is who he is if he gets knocked out here in round one? I think, well, if they lose this series, D'Antoni's gone for sure, right? That's going to happen. Um, Harden is who he is now. I think the question is, how do you build around him, right? To me, it's like what I was saying earlier about having a front court player. I just wish he had a six. Like, to me, if I was Houston, I would have went after Jimmy Butler last year. I want a big six seven, six eight front court wing to pair with Harden. I think if Harden is your best player and he has no front court help, you're probably not going to win a title. This last seven years is proof of that. How do you get that front court player? They basically need Westbrook to be that front court player, right? If, if your best two players are 6'3 and 6'5, I mean, it's, it's going to be that you're at a disadvantage no matter what. They got to make an upgrade in their roster. I mean, because Harden is who he is, you're right. I'm not changing now. See, I'm, my thought would be I think I could talk myself into we didn't have Westbrook. And if we had had him, the ceiling of this season is a lot higher because Westbrook was, he was their best player for the last 20 games before the pandemic, yeah. right? Once they and changed then you up see, their team for sure. Yeah. And just added so many things. So I, I, I think my thing would be, I wouldn't panic, but I'd be trying to improve the Eric Gordon spot who I think they just signed. Um, they gave him a big extension. Yeah. Just like yeah. I think the summer. The problem for them is they don't have any picks to do stuff. Um, also their owner doesn't spend any money. That's also very tough to win that way. Yeah. They, their owner might be over leveraged. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? And then as money I, as know, I do our friend of the ringer, Daryl Morey. Like, I don't know if he becomes the fall guy in this situation, which I think would personally be unfair because Westbrook got hurt. And I think if any team loses, if any team is built around two guys and loses one of the two guys, you have to assess that accordingly at the same time you know, listening to the quotes after game four, we're like, we had the great shots. They just didn't go in. It's like, well, that's kind of the team you built. 
And year after yeah. year, as we get in these playoffs and guys get more and more tired, and then it's like, yeah, we had those threes that didn't go in. It's like, that seems like that happens every year to two or three teams. So unfortunately for, sure. for you, that might be the hand you dealt yourself. So I don't, I don't really know the answer, but I think they kind of maximized what the potential of this roster was, especially with like Rivers, Macklemore, House, and Green. You look at those four guys and the four Mavs guys that the Mavs kind of stumbled into, right? Trey yeah. Burke, who's on the Sixers. He's been killing it. My gosh. And then Seth Curry, who was just sitting there for free agency for anybody. Boban, who who was like basically the guy from John Wick and nobody was thinking about in like a real basketball way. Didn't play for Philly last year at all in the playoffs. And the, these two teams kind of MacGyvered a supporting cast. Um, I don't know. I, I, this, this could be the end of, end of the road for... Houston as a major contender. Cause you think like 18 and 19. And now this year there's a, how often do title contenders have like three years, four years, if they don't do it this year and now Harden's 31 next year, Westbrook would be in his thirties, like, and so on and so on. It's like, I don't know. Now you're really, See, I, th with I think you have Harden. I think you like really, you reset the whole team with Westbrook. This is year one of Harden Westbrook. Harden's only 31. His game should age pretty well. Right not really a high flyer. So if Westbrook can stay healthy, the question is, is this the beginning of him getting hurt, right? Right. As long as Russ have left in that big contract, what he plays, is that style of play going to work in his 30s? If Russ breaks down, yeah, this is over. Well, and it's almost like a football running back, right? Where somebody mm -hmm. plays th those guys in the NFL, like the running backs or the receivers who are just hitting guys every game and taking punishment over and over again, and you start looking at them going, ah, I don't know how that person's going to imagine remember, them in uh, their 35. Barber, the Cowboys running back a couple, like oh, 10, yeah. 10 years ago. Perfect example. Yeah. We had, uh, in the nineties, we had Ben Coates, the best Patriot tight end ever until Gronk. And every, every play where he caught a pass, three guys took him down. And all of a sudden I mean, it Gr was like, it was done. It was, and Gronk was like that. The Gronk same too. Way, yeah. Perfect like, example. Yeah. yeah. Where it's like, oh man, man, this isn't going to last that long. And then it was over immediately. The Westbrook thing, he plays so hard. He is so physical and he's constantly bouncing off dudes and flying and stuff like that. I can't imagine this is somebody who's going to be playing until his 40s. You know, no, like not his 40s. The There's physical no toll on him. Harden, I think that's the one where I just have no idea how long he can do this. You can I tell think me he's doing forever. this five years from now. Yeah. And, it, and it's I think just so. as effective, I would believe it. Because his game is all off speed, it's change of pace, using his size, getting off tough shots, passing. His game, I think, will last a long time. The question for me is like, would he ever leave Houston? Where would he go? That'd be fun to watch Harden with somebody else on a different team. Mm. Well, do you think Dallas and Houston basically have the same objective with what they want from their roster? I got Dallas has the piece of the Porzingis piece where they actually have somebody who's seven foot three who can stick his hands up on defense. But for the most part, they're fishing in the same pool for role players, mm -hmm. right? They want yeah. the Seth Curry, um, Trey Burke, Maxi Kleber type guys who first things first know how to shoot if somebody passes them the ball quickly. Yeah, I would say the Mavs role players are better shooters. The Rockets guys are better defenders. But the way the yeah. league is now, if your guys aren't shooting really well, it's almost like shooting over everything else kind of feels like now. What would you do if you were OKC? Let's say they get like, through this series. Let's say they win this series okay. and they lose to the Lakers in five. 
they're a luxury tax team next year, small market. There's always been rumors about uh, the affordability of the team. They have all that stuff. Chris Paul with a huge salary the next couple of years. Do you keep this team together and try to add to it? You have all these picks. Um, do you try to attach the picks with Adams to dump his contract? Do you feel like you could contend with the with uh, three of the guys that you have? Plus, I think Alan is a free agent. Um, yes, yeah, I believe he's up. But do you feel like you could actually do stuff with this team, or do you just blow it up and rebuild around SGA so, and picks? Yeah, here here's my thought. I wrote about this, I think, like in February. To me, I'm saying I'm going to count on SGA being a star. Now I'm going to go star hunting for a second young star because I have like a trillion picks. I have, you you know, if you're OKC, we're never signing a star here. Right? He's got to be a trade. So if I have like eight first round picks and I have SGM say, maybe Cat comes free one summer, maybe Booker comes free, Bradley Beal. I'm going after a star to pair with SGA and I'm building around that. And I'm going to gamble my culture will keep them in Oklahoma City long term. I think you got to go in on a star now and not rebuild because you already have a good team. If you have a good team, I think if this team had one more like real elite player, they could be a serious squad with all the picks they have. Let's go for somebody whoever's free. Let's take a quick break to talk about our old friends at ZipRecruiter. When it comes to scoring great hires for your business, you may be up against some obstacles like lots of applicants, but difficulty finding the right ones for your job or finding time to hire while running your business, plus trying to ensure workplace safety. That's why you need ZipRecruiter on your team, no matter the industry, healthcare, to manufacturing, to business services, whatever. ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. And now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. First, when you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job sites. And then ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology hustles for you to find people with the right experience for your job and invites them to apply. In fact, listen to this stat. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter to get a quality candidate within the first day. Add ZipRecruiter to your roster to help you win the hiring game. You can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Once again, that is ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Back to Charks. Kyle, tell the video team to get ready for this one. This is a clip, instant breakout clip. Sharks, right. the Clippers can press the reset button and do the Paul George trade over again <laughs> right now. The Adam Silver has made a rule. We can undo this trade. You can have all your picks back <laughs> and you can have SGA and Gallo for the rest of the playoffs and give Paul George back to the Thunder. It's it's under the wire. It's under your. You can return him. with the Clippers Man. do this? Well, he's playing right now. It'd be hard not to do it, right? But hopefully, he can turn it around. But I don't know. I mean, how is he so bad? It's unbelievable. Really, I don't understand that he can't figure out how to have like that Pippen kind of impact in these games if his shot's not going. You know, like I think the really yeah. great players who can vacillate between being a lead guy in a game versus like being an awesome complimentary player, they'll just go get 13 rebounds or they'll block five shots mm -hmm. or um, they'll just fill up the box score. Basically, they'll have 10 points, but they'll have seven assists, 13 rebounds, five steals. And it's like, I still had an impact anyway. The weird thing about him is he'll just disappear if his shot's not going in and he doesn't have the impact. And you would have thought like, especially in that Luca game on Sunday, 
that he would have been looking at it going, I, I've got to get more involved. I got to help out. I'm, I'm going to be just flying around like an athletic maniac. And he just wasn't. And that's, yeah. that's where it gets confusing for me with him as where this is a guy who I voted for third for MVP last year. I thought he was incredible. And I don't understand why it comes and goes with him like that. He's the only like elite player that you would say, you just don't know what you're getting game to game. See, my thought with that is, I think this is a test of Kawhi's leadership, right? You, you chose this guy. He's your number two. You're the star. Can you build him up, right? Can you give him his confidence? Can you create easy shots for him? Can you just talk to him, right? Kawhi's always gotten to be Mr. Quiet Guy, do my own thing. Y'all are pros, figure it out. Well, right now, your number two guy is dying out there. You've got to be the leader. You've got to get him going. And yeah, like, Paul George should go to the lane. The Mavs don't play defense. Get to the rim, distribute the ball, finish inside, get to the foul line, get to see some shots going, then you get your threes, right? If your shot's not falling, go, go inside. And he has the ability to do it. He just has to do it. So to me, yeah, like Kawhi Leonard said, I want Paul George. I'm trading like eight first round picks for him. He's my guy. Well, if he's your guy and he's struggling, build him up and get him going. That's the test of like a real leader, right? You want to be a champion. You got to get the rest of all your teammates. Don't let them just die out there struggling. Paul George and, and Zubats for Embiid. <sighs> Embiid was not great in these playoffs. I'm worried about Embiid. I'm too. I would be, yeah. I'd be shopping him. Like if I was Philly, I'm keeping Simmons and Embiid. I'm getting him out of here. I think. I think Russell and I, we litigated that on Sunday and we, that was the decision we came to pretty quickly that it's the safer bet to trade Embiid that he's not going to come back to haunt you. The Simmons thing. I think, yeah, the I think Simmons kid Embiid, has way more hauntability yeah, potential. For sure. With Embiid too, I think he has to get traded to wake up, be like, all right, I got to stay in shape. I got to be serious about basketball. I think he needs that kick in the pants of being traded somewhere else. I think if he stays in Philly, he has all these bad habits and never change. Well, there are a lot of Popovich rumors flying around, which I have been flying around, honestly, for two months about him in the Nets, him in the Sixers, maybe. It's the perfect time. I think the exit plan for Popovich, if he left the Spurs, which I think he should, because I think that team, he took them as They're far as he could go. Yeah. 20 years, all that stuff. And maybe he finagles it so... Becky Hammond is the next coach or however he does it. Like I'm sure he'll have some awesome exit from there. Him going to Philly would be so reminiscent of when Phil Jackson took over those super disappointing Laker teams in the late nineties when, you know, I, I think they got swept two of the three years. They owe it. The seasons always ended badly. People are always disappointed in Shaq for whatever reason. And then Phil Jackson came in and immediately righted the ship. And I wonder like Popovich in Philly, could that be the one way you save all this? Because from a contract standpoint, they're fucked. They either have to trade yeah. Embiid or Simmons or just hire a coach and hope the coach can fix this. But Popovich okay, so taking over that team, what a... I mean, if he actually pulled off the Philly thing and got in, Embiid engaged and turned him into the dominant guy that we think he could be game after game, that would be as impressive as all the titles in San Antonio. If you were Pop, would you do Brooklyn or Philly? You could choose. I wouldn't go near Brooklyn. I just wouldn't go really? near Kyrie. I wouldn't go near him. I just feel like with KD, if you have KD in him, you always have a chance. He's just so good. If I can get him, the rest of these guys will figure it out. I would do Philly. Good, good engaged fan base. I have two of the best, like 16 or 17 guys in the league with possible trade opportunities. I feel like they can dump Horford. I think they can 
take yeah, somebody probably. else's problem back, the more I look at it, it's going to be somebody else's shitty contract, but at least you can flip it so you can take somebody else's bad thing back. And it's not somebody who plays the same position as Embiid. But to me, if I'm Popovich, it's like, I would be looking at it. It's like, if I can unlock Embiid, I have one of the three guys that matters in the league going forward. Luka, Giannis, yeah. Embiid third. I feel like if I'm Pop, though, I could say, if I could get KD going, I could have the number one player in the league next year, right? If KD can come back somewhat healthy, forget two of the top 15, give me the number one guy. If I have the number one guy and some talent around him, we'll make it work. But then you're like, eh, I'm going to do a Kyrie deep dive. Let me make some calls. <laughs> you start calling That's around. True. You're like, oh, really? He did what? <laughs> Wait a second. That happened? Over and over again. I just wouldn't go near him. I don't think it's worth yeah. it. He's too old, too. I'd worry about Pop's health coaching Kyrie. <laughs> Brad's, he aged Brad Stevens by like five years last year. I'm telling you, uh, coaching Ben and Joel is no joke either, though. About speaking of trades, too. you threw out Ben Simmons for Denver, which I loved, which was the other reason I wanted to have mm -hmm. you on, other than to talk about how Lou Dort is one of the best five players in the league <laughs> now. Um, you, were you were saying Ben Simmons with Denver solves a variety of problems for them. Um, yeah. Exp expound on that. Okay. So my thought with Denver is if you have Nikola Jokic, you know, this guy is realistically never going to guard anyone. Like, right. You've got to hide him on defense all the time. So that means if he's going to be hidden constantly, you got to have somebody who's going to be able to defend centers, defend power forwards, defend point guards on switches. You basically the best defensive player in the league next to him. Well, is Ben Simmons not a top three defender? And yes. so that alone makes it worth it, right? Is having that. So you have so like, you're saying you know, like for offense, Simmons for defense, kind of a combination. So like the Utah series, you'd put Simmons on Gobert. Yeah. And for now sure. they can't do the Mitchell Gobert pick and roll, exactly. which they've run. Exactly. I think they've run it 200 times and have scored on 198 <laughs> of them. Um, oh, yeah. So I had the stat in that when Mitchell goes at Jokic in the pick and roll, he scores more points than JJ Reddick catch and shoot threes unguarded. Like it's automatic <laughs> money every single time. They got to change up. Well, I, w I liked Utah in this series and I, w the Conley thing, I was ready to bet on them before the series. I couldn't believe Denver was favored. I didn't really know what Denver was. And then Conley missed the first couple of games. I got scared off, but so I started betting it game mm -hmm. by game. And I just don't think Mike Malone's a very good coach. Um, I, the stuff that they're, some of the stuff they're doing, especially defensively in this series, like you, you wrote in the ringer piece, which I think is a really good point. Jokic just has to be on the worst player on the other team all the time. You, yeah. you have to put him on Royce O'Neal because he's, mm -hmm. he's Utah's version of Paul Millsap. He's the guy you put, you put somebody on if you either he's in foul trouble or you're trying to hide him. Yeah. And they're not doing it. And I watch that. I watch how they kind of missed the boat on Porter Jr. this year, who I think we both think is really talented. He never got enough reps during the season. And then in the playoffs, he looks lost, which I, I can't say is shocking. And they lose out this extra candidate. And the reality is Murray had two like career games in the first four, two mm -hmm. career games. And they're still, they still fell behind three to one. Um, so to me, that tells me regardless, we're taping this before game five today, but to me, that tells me that, uh, they just, they're not going to win this series. Well, it's, so it's what you were saying about Malone, right? Like getting Jokic on O'Neal is a game two adjustment. This is game five. Now he's doing it. Right. He wasted three games. Like 
you got to make faster adjustments. Like Scott Brooks is telling him, adjust faster, please. <laughs> like, come on. Ben Simmons for Jamal Murray. You threw that out there. It's weird, but I think Ben Simmons has more value. I really do like Jamal Murray with Jokic, and I think he's young enough that you could grow into that. If I were them, I would be doing everything possible to get the third star while keeping Murray. But if Philly's like, we want Murray, that's the guy we want. You will do Simmons for Murray, throw in bull bull and like a pick. Mm -hmm. I think Denver would have to bite the bullet and do that. I just look at it like you can't have your best two players both be really bad defenders. It just puts a ceiling on your team. So to me, like you've got to have a little more balance around Jokic. If he was a good defender, you can have Jamal Murray out there, whatever. But he's so bad on defense. Murray's probably never going to be a very good defender. You just got to switch that up for the synergy of your team. I think you, you got to do it. My dream Ben Simmons scenario, as a, as a Ben Simmons truther in the sense of, I, want, I just want Ben Simmons to have his own team that's built around somebody mm -hmm. who's like, we're gonna, just going to do every possible thing to put Ben Simmons in a position to succeed. I like the thought of him going to New Orleans with Mike D'Antoni. And like a Drew Holiday and Lonzo and whatever else for Ben Simmons. And then D'Antoni joins him and he's basically like, here are the car keys. I am turning you into a Ben Simmons Testarossa. We are going, 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 going all the time. Let's do this. Let's go. Question is, is Simmons and Zion in the same spot, right? Because they're both non-shooting bigs who want to attack the rim. Oh, you just so threw water on me. That's the question, right? Because you want Zion to be Simmons too. They're both kind of in that same spot on the floor, like getting to the rim. Could you play them as like no other centers, anything where it's just basically like those are your guys in charge? I mean, you'd have to take the sure. rim. Yeah. I think, I think, you'd I have think to. you could do that part. Question with Zion, like he hasn't looked as good. He didn't defend at all this year. He was great on defense in college. I'm worried about him a little bit just physically. Hopefully he's okay. I'm writing this year off for him. Yeah, that makes Gets sense. Gets hurt before the year. Yeah. I think he fell out of shape. I think they had a weird coach situation. Um, the pandemic happens right as he's like getting his feet back. And he looked completely out of shape to me in a, in a disturbing way. And, you know, to me, him and Embiid are my two guys where you just, you just want to put your arms around them and try to explain to them, you know, especially <laughs> me, I'm 50. I'm like, hey dudes, I've, I've, I've been down this road before with NBA stars. I like, like you guys got to get in shape. You just have to. Yeah. Yeah. And beats sure. exhausted in the third it's quarter ridiculous. of a game three of a playoff series. It's like, what are you doing? What did you do for the last five months? Uh, before we go, even though this is before Clippers Mavs game five. So God knows what's going to happen today. I was talking about, I think the ceiling for Luca for me officially is this guy has a chance to be one of the best 10 or 12 guys ever, which I is not something I would say flippantly. I just mm -hmm. think he's hit. I, I laid out the whole case on Sunday. He's at every checkpoint you'd ever want to hit. He's doing things we've never seen from anybody at this age before. When you're, you're in Texas, you've been watching this, you were going to the games. When did you realize that that was in play with him? How, how long ago? I mean, I, I feel like I always thought that going back to Europe, but when I knew for sure it was actually game one against the Clippers, when he pushed Kawhi out of the way at the rim, I was like, oh, it's over. If this guy at 21 can bully Kawhi, like who's guarding him? No one. That was, to right. me was the last thing I needed to see. 
was like Luca dominating the best defender in the world. When he can do that, like to me, this series, it reminds me of the 07 Pistons series when LeBron had like 50 yeah. points in game five. It's like, I'm here. I'm unstoppable. It doesn't matter who you are. Get out of my way. I'm scoring 45, 50 points a game. Yeah. And the thing is, he's not even really that good of a three-point shooter yet. And If that ever comes, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, when you start thinking, you start doing the math of how he gets better because there's no way somebody peaks at 21. It's impossible. They're, they He should peak like 26, 27. But if he gets to, if he becomes like a 50, 40, 90 guy on top of the way he sees basketball, he's going to be, in my opinion, the best offensive perimeter player of all time because there will be nobody who can, he's basically combining the best skills of like three all-time guys, you know? So my, my thought is like, he's got LeBron's kind of strength and all all around game with Harden's offensive skill set, right? So imagine if LeBron could hit step back threes regularly. Right. And I would throw in the the bird magic passing gene because I do think he has it. I think he sees stuff that for his age is is just completely unusual. Like the creativity he has with some of these plays, you're talking a handful of guys in the history of the league that some of the stuff he sees and the effect it has on his teammates too. I think that's the part people miss with great passers is when you're playing basketball and you're one of the other four guys and you feel like you're in the play, even though it doesn't seem mm-hmm. like you are, that's when it goes to another level. And I, I think when Dallas got bogged down this year, it would be when Luke, when they fell into that one on five stuff where yeah. Luca's and everybody's just kind of standing there when they're running a little action and, and people are moving around and it's a little more unpredictable. That's to me, that's the future of that team. And I think Houston and Harden have realized that a little bit too, that if it's just one on five with everybody standing there, eventually the other team figures it out. I mean, I think for Dallas, like it's a small thing, but having Trey Burke, having a second ball handler that just destroys the defense. Cause against Dallas this year, it's always Luca dribbling four guys, jump shooting. But having that second playmaker, Luca can play off of a little bit, then it's unstoppable. Like sometimes, if you can get a guy who can give Luca open shots, you can play off the ball maybe like 10% of the time. I think that's the final step for Luca is just playing a little bit of one two action. Because really, probably KP's at number three. He's a spot up shooter, post player. I want one more guy who can clear off the dribble to give Luca easy shots sometimes. I'm psyched that Seth Curry realized his full potential as like a valuable role. Oh, he's guy killing it. I've liked him for, I never understood why he wasn't playing three years ago. And in general, like when somebody can shoot like that and he's a little trickier around the rim than I think people realize he's definitely not, you know, like some of these guys, they can shoot, but around the rim, they'll just get their shit blocked. I mean, Steph, the same thing. Those Curry brothers got that, that gene for sure. I think with shooters, they seem to mature, you know, you're basically like you have somebody like Shamit, right? Who's young. Yeah, But I think if you look at the history of how these shooters go, they really kind of figure out who they are and what they are and the little tricks. And there's just these subtle things from age like 27 to 29 where they go up a level. It happened with JJ too. And JJ was an amazing scorer Mm -hmm. in college, but it took him years and years to kind of harness that and figure out all the little tricks and stuff. Even somebody like Doug McDermott on Indiana, who nobody kind of knew what to do with forever, but now has turned into a role. A I was going to say Bradley Beal. Bradley Beal gets better every year, like for like four or five years. And he keeps well, he, but he's really good, though. I, yeah, I'm yeah, talking, okay, like, talking about pure shooters. Okay, that's what you're saying. I'm talking like everybody's looking for the for shooting in the league, but but for some reason, 
these guys can hit this kind of uh, purgatory where they've been around for a couple of years and people kind of think they are what they are, but really the history says mm-hmm. year five, year six, year seven, year eight, they'll make a leap. And it definitely happened with Curry. Curry was sitting there for everybody for a week in free agency, yeah. right? Uh, the Mavs, the Mavs targeted him pretty early because he was in Dallas three years right. ago. It's actually kind of funny. So I had a big feature for Seth like three years ago in Dallas. Then he gets hurt the entire season. We had to kill the feature. He goes to Portland, gets himself healthy, and has a big year last year. Dallas came, I think, four for 32. So they knew he was good. And with Seth, it's like, you got a shooter with handles. A shooter with yeah. handles is unguardable, right? Can get that shot, you got to guard him. Then he can dribble three or four times, get a shot again. There's a guy in the draft like that. I've been doing some draft homework. Oh, nice. Who's your guy? Well, the guy from Stanford, I think, has potential like that, right? That's KOC's guy. He loves him. Tyrell Terry. That's KOC's guy for sure. He's 6'2", so the knock on him as well, he's 6'2". And it's like, this guy can already fucking fill it. Now, I think the Carson Edwards is kind of the cutoff line for... Because I watched it with the Celtics. Like, he's just too... He's too short. Like you have to be like one of the greatest shooters of all time to overcome. He's probably like five nine, five nine and a half. Um, Dana Barris was able to do it, but mm-hmm. Dana Barris was somebody who scored at every level. He came into the pros and he was able to do it too. But um, yeah, uh, I like the Stanford kid. I have a favorite guy though. I'm just I'm gonna announce it on the podcast for you. All right, here we go. Who you got? Who you got? I love Halliburton. That's my guy. Love, love how okay, he's great. But he should be the guy Minnesota takes, and they won't. They'll, th- they'll probably yeah. take Edwards and be I think like, oh, Edwards. we got Edwards and Russell. Look at the shooting we have. And it's like, they should just take Halliburton. Halliburton. He's- so I did a big profile on him before the season. He's like a freaking genius. He's one of the smartest guys I ever talked to. One of his uh, coaches told me, it was just kind of a weird quote. He said, Tyrese Halliburton, he'll be the president of the union one day, of the players' union. That's the kind of guy he is. Just unselfish, super oh, wow. smart. That's very, great. Yeah, yeah, right? And he's just like, the way he thinks the game is just next level. He's, he's really big. He has a really goofy looking shot, but it goes in. He's like six. To me, he's like Lonzo. I feel like he's the real younger ball brother. <laughs> he right. plays more like Lonzo than LaMelo does. Well, he's 6'5". Granted, I'm just watching an hour of YouTube clips on yeah. him. There's a feel to the game. It reminded me a little of uh, Evan Turner, who I still feel like if his goes to a different team, um, and I think his career would have been a little differently, gone gone a little differently. Mm-hmm. I think Hal Burton's gonna be Hal Burton's gonna be better than Evan Turner, but same kind of thing where he's he's tall. He kind of ha- he needs the ball. He has a sense of where everybody is, but there's an intelligence with him. That made me think like, man, if he ends up on Golden State, they don't trade the pick. I still think they're going to trade the pick. But if they don't, mm-hmm. and you're putting him with Curry and Clay in these three-guard lineups that everybody's doing now, but you have somebody who really sees the floor, who knows what he is, who's a great passer, that would be such a fun wrinkle for those two guys, so, right? with Halliburton, so last summer he played in the team, the under-19s, with like all these great younger guys like Cade Cunningham. And he had like one of the most efficient, I think I had the numbers on it. He had the most efficient U19 ever in the history of the tournament. He was like at wow. 65% shooting because he's playing with other good players, playing off those guys. He's so smart. The question is the jump shot. It's kind of goofy. Do you believe in that? If you believe in that, it's going to be great. But, you know, it's got a weird looking shot. It didn't, it didn't jump out at me too much. 
Mm-hmm. It's a little weird. It, you know, it doesn't look like Bradley Beal's jump shot, but he seemed comfortable shooting and didn't have like that false hitch or anything like that. I, I was okay with it. The, that uh, was the Lonzo question too. Like, do you live in the shot? Lonzo's shot I've never liked. I've never yeah. felt like that was a normal shot. And, you know, I know it was one game, but what was that game? Who's the guy who kicked his ass um, in college when he went oh, against De'Aaron somebody? Fox. De'Aaron Fox in the tournament. I yeah. never got over that game with him. As much as I liked Lonzo, I never understood. I, kept, I remember he kept get, they would inbound the ball to him and he kept giving it up because he didn't want to dribble up against Fox. And I, I thought that was so weird. It was so like an anti-alpha dog thing. And Fox was just like, I'm better than this guy. And he carried yeah. himself like that the whole see, time. See, I, I love watching those games for college guys. Let me see your game against the best players. Forget against right. the average college players, the other NBA guys. That's what he tells the whole tale, I think, a lot of times. I like the other KOC guy that I'm I'm down with is uh, Vassell. He's good. He's a very solid. He's a very solid player. Three Just and D, say, big time. He, here's the thing, with the way the draft is, there's too many guards at the top. It never works. Not everybody's going to need guards. And one of these guys, one of these teams, will prioritize just having a wing, and they'll take them three spots higher than. Okay, than so it I seems got a like sleeper for go. you, Bill. My okay. sleeper is Vassell's teammate, Patrick Williams of Florida State. I think he's got a chance to be a really special player. I'm doing a big profile on him. He's like 6'8", 230, really athletic, mm. pretty smart, decent jump shot. I think he has the tools to be really possibly one of the top players in this draft in two years. He's also the youngest player in the draft, which is also a plus. Who do you think Minnesota is going to take? My guess is Edwards. I think they can't ignore he's just the, the, the tools he has, the flashes he has. I bet they just go for it. If the if the new owner called you and said Sharks, who who should we take? Who would you tell him? Jeez, I think I would do Edwards, knowing it's a risk. But he's got so much talent; oh, like man. he's really young too. But he's got so much talent. I think I would go for it. He's so big; he can shoot it. I would probably go Edwards, even though I know it's a risk. It seems like he makes more sense for Charlotte to trade up to one and maybe give up like some small asset. And then if you're Minnesota, you could still end up with Halliburton at three and see my thought with Edwards, I think it'd be like, it'd be like Jalen Brown in Boston where he goes somewhere where there's other two other good players. He plays off those guys for a year and kind of commits to defense and grows into a bigger role over time. Cause at Georgia this year, he was just jacking shots constantly. He was like, one scout gave me the Dion so, Waiters comp, and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> so you think playing with uh, Towns and D'Lo would be a great outcome for him? He'd get a lot of space. Play with Cat. Play with Cat. You can get to the rim very easy, right? D'Lo can give him open shots. He's a decent enough point guard. I think that makes sense to me as a third option with two guys who can shoot. Because at Georgia, they had no spacing around him, so he was constantly just jacking jump shots. He had nowhere to go. In Minnesota... No one will play defense, but they'll score a ton of points. He might fit there, maybe. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll have you back on as it gets closer. But so who is your big sleeper? Patrick Williams, Florida State. Okay. I'm in on Hal Burton. Hal Burton, if you're listening, I'm in on you. Sharks, pleasure. We'll see you on the ringer.com. Thanks for having me on. All right, we're bringing in Seth Myers in one second. First, during this time of social distancing, connecting with friends over a beer today may look a little different. As the original light beer, Miller Lite has always been there to bring people together through Miller time. 
but in a world where you can't always be with your people, Miller time might be a moment on a Zoom call, quick porch beer with your neighbors, masking up for a socially distant hangout outside. Whether you're toasting friends near or far, great taste is always close by. And I got to say, there's no better summer beer than Miller Lite. Just especially as uh, Joe House talked about a couple weeks ago on the golf course. It's the beer you want. Right now, enjoying a Miller Lite with friends. Maybe it looks different for everybody, but staying connected is just as important. I did this a couple days ago, actually. Had a, had a couple drinks with uh, some friends of mine. We were just on Zoom. Gotten used to it. Kind of surprised how uh, gotten used to it I've gotten. But uh, it was a great time for Miller time from online happy hours to social distance picnics and every 500 piece puzzle in between. We're enjoying new ways of spending time with our friends. Miller Lite, great taste with only 96 calories and 3.2 carbs. However you and your friends are enjoying Miller time this summer, you can have the original light beer delivered by going to MillerLite.com forward slash BS and find the delivery options near you. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories and 3.2 carbs per 12 ounces. All right, Seth Myers is here. Um, one of the big winners of the pandemic. People writing pieces that I saw on the <laughs> internet about "Dear Seth Myers, please keep your hair" was yeah. an actual title of a vulture piece. <laughs> your hair has been a breakout star of the pandemic. They, I mean, it's the longest it's ever been. But did you expect this? No, I didn't expect. You know, and early on, I tried very hard to tame it to make it look shorter than it was. And full credit to my wife, who said, "Look, you know, it's the last week. Let it fly. Let people see exactly what you've been working with these past six months." And uh, a very, very kind piece by Meg Wright over at Vulture. And uh, I, I'm, we're not gonna let it. We are gonna cut it, but we're gonna keep it a little longer than where we usually started. If you had a baseball cap, you would look like one of the dudes and everybody wants some. The Richard Linklater oh, baseball yeah. movie from the, the best, early 80s, I think. Yeah. The best movie, the the most conflict-free uh, two-hour movie of the last uh, decade. 100%. The, we've been... We've been circling it for the rewatchables for a while. It's it's probably going to happen. It's just like an enjoyable romp. The best thing about that movie is they go to that, like the drama kids party and you just, having watched movies from the 80s, you know when the jocks go to that party, something goes wrong, and everybody just has a perfectly fine time. Everybody gets along. She's it's great. It's full. It's, a, it's like Mark, with the baseball cap, it's very Mark Fidrichy. Oh, yeah. Well. It, like, flies. It gets very wingy. So you must have been like us, right? This The pandemic hits. Yeah. You're like, well, how am I going to do my job? Yep. And then you kind of try to figure it out on the fly and it's fucking weird. Yeah. But then eventually you kind of figure out how to do it. When did, when did you at what month did you figure out how to do it? Well, we had a weird thing where we first, we sort of had to figure out where to do it. And we popped around a little bit in that first couple of weeks. And then we ended up in my attic, which ended up, especially with two little kids ended up being the best place. Cause it was the hardest for them to get to. And of course you're doing it in the middle of the day and they don't have school. And then we moved again for the summer to my in-laws place. And it was easier the second time to, to figure it out, but it was also kind of good for the creative juices to not get too, you know, in a groove. You never want to get right. in a groove in an attic. Um, but, uh, I would say about, you know, two months in, I felt like we had figured out at least how to do it at the level people saw it on TV. Well, and you're used to just staring into a camera and delivering stuff. 
Yeah, pretty much. The biggest issue is we never really went HD. Like a lot of people gently suggested we make the camera better. And when we tried making the camera better, the lighting, of course, was way worse because good cameras need better lighting. And it, I was sort of a one-man band. And so we ultimately decided, you know what, let's just sit, uh, stick with the lower-level camera. And I think people at home will appreciate and forgive us for our um, faults. How did you handle a writing staff where you can't see anybody ever? It was totally fine. I mean, <laughs> it was like credit to them for doing really good writing. We would do a closer look meeting every day. So we would have FaceTime with that group of people where we would read through it and just mostly just to read through it out loud so that people could hear it. And then we'd do one writer's meeting a week where people would pitch new ideas. But ultimately the monologue jokes that is usually a face-to-face -face meeting where I sit in the room with everybody writes those and we read them out loud. You know, we kind of just skipped that process and the work did not suffer for it. That's good. Yeah, well, you've... I mean, 2020, all the weird shit that's going on, a lot of it is in your wheelhouse to, for things to talk yeah. about. Like the Steve Bannon thing I saw the other day, that, that just falls out of the sky. It's but, the I perfect mean, it, closer the look. Timing, the timing of when it fell out of the sky wasn't ideal because we had a whole nother closer look that then. And those things, the first drafts are sometimes, you know, 30, 35 pages. And then Steve Bannon happens at around 1030 in the morning and it's your last show of the summer. And you know, if you don't talk about Steve Bannon now, it's not like it's going to be a story when we get back. Right. And so we ultimately did decide to rip it up because Steve Bannon getting arrested on a boat with his current haircut. Again, I, I realize I'm, I'm in a glass house here with haircuts, but uh, we did enjoy talking about that as a send off to the summer. His was great because the, the look he had going was really like about 20 different action movie villains that show up an hour into the movie where it's like, oh, this is the guy in charge of the hostel. Yeah, he's the guy, right? He's the money guy. Like right. the, you thought another guy was the bad guy, but he just works for the money guy. And then it turns <laughs> out he's the bad guy. And then he's, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, and also you met him early in the movie on the train and he like helped you look at a map <laughs> to get to the hostel. And then you realized, <laughs> oh. You liked him, but didn't totally trust him. And then it right. worked. Um, and somebody, one of the four people in the group said he was friendly, um, <laughs> but then you just dismissed it. <laughs> what do you expect from everything the next two months? Because, you know, you're, and Kimmel's in the same boat, all the late night guys are to some degree. You're, you're more, a little more hyper-focused on the yeah. politics and all that stuff, but we're about to enter... I would say the most contentious time since we've been alive. We're already here, but it's just going to go yeah. up a notch. Yeah. And how do you handle that on your show? Well, you know, we're not uh, trying to, at this point, I don't feel like anybody is watching our, our show on the fence about the current administration. Good right? point. And uh, so we're, you know, basically trying to provide uh, information uh, with jokes uh, to make it a little bit more of a cathartic experience. And, you know, I don't really have much expectation except that hopefully our approach to how we write will will uh, maintain its value. Like, I, I things are going to happen really quickly. And, and I think, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a pessimist, but I do think it's going to get a little scary, especially when you just see polling about how, you know, I, and again, I don't know how the question was asked, but do you think 175,000 dead Americans is okay? And, and you just realize Republicans, the majority think it's okay, which I think is only a thing you answer if you're so, you know, smitten with the current president 
that he can just do no wrong in your mind. So that's a really scary thing to be living through. And, but the weeks we have the show are easier to get through than the weeks we're on hiatus. Like, I don't even want to watch the RNC this week because one, we can't tell jokes about it. And uh, without the jokes part of it, it'll just uh, feel like bone on bone. Right. Well, then you have the other thing of, you know, how do you handle the Biden piece of this? Because on paper, this is the perfect SNL guy to have a parody guy of, right? This is like every single piece you would want to unleash somebody like Sudeikis on and just be like, just go, man, make them make them super out of it. And then all of a sudden lucid. And then, and, but now we're at a point where it's like, if you really care about the future of the country, you don't want to mock the person who is, is probably the best chance to change the country in it for, for the better. I certainly am. That argument is uh, presented to me on Twitter. Anytime we tell a joke about Joe Biden, the only thing I'd say is if mockery was effective insofar as how it, uh, you know, affected people's choices at the at the voting booth like like donald trump wouldn't win a state right it's a great point you know it's like well uh you know if look it's you're the refs are home team refs if you're uh if you're a biden guy right now but they're gonna every now and then a whistle is gonna get blown against you like that's just how it go and uh i think we lose all our value if, if nobody uh if nobody makes jokes about joe biden that's how I feel too. Like I had my buddy Jacko on two weeks ago and we were talking about the election and we were joking about Biden and a couple of people in my life were like, Hey man, you can't, can't really do that right now. And I'm like, well, if we're, if we're not going to poke fun at people, then our society is just going to collapse. If, if, if yeah. there's just certain segments of the population, certain people that are just completely hands off and we can't figure out any way to navigate that. I don't know what happens. Comedy has been part of our lives really since human beings existed. I don't know how we just flipped that switch off. And it's one of the reasons why 2020 has turned into such a complicated time because a lot of the people just don't want to have a sense of humor about anything. And I don't know how you navigate that. It is. I mean, ultimately you just kind of lean into what you still think is funny and, and hope that there's an audience for it. You know, I do think that even Biden, because he's presenting himself as, you know, the antidote to Trump, as opposed to, and again, I'm sure Biden people will be angry to hear me say that I don't think he has a grand vision in the way that some politicians would. I think he's saying like, hey, we got to get back to the decency of this country, which I think is a really effective message when you're running against Donald Trump. And I don't think anyone's making jokes that are you know, taking issue with that and saying, right. like, like, I think when you put them side by side, they're both the same uh, in terms of character. I, I don't think any of the shows are doing that. And, uh, you know, it'd be a, it would be a really tough argument to make comedically, certainly as well. How would you have handled the Trump thing the last four years if you were the head writer of SNL? I think it would have been just, I think they've done a really nice job, but I think it just would have been a slog because I think back to the Palin, you know, being the head writer during the Palin times and, you know, there was that like, we got out, right? Like we sold high in that we did six sketches with Sarah Palin. And then because she wasn't, you know. She didn't get elected. Yeah. yeah, And she went away and everybody like looks back and goes, oh, those are so good. (laughs) As opposed to, you know, if we were doing our 50th or 60th one, I think obviously the level of difficulty gets a lot higher. Um, But I think they, you know, they've, I've been, I've been relieved not to have had to take that on, especially, uh, 
you know, I, you know, I think that even when I went back to host, I realized like, oh, this is a SNL is a young man's game, and I do not right. have that fastball anymore. Yeah, what was that like? I haven't talked to you since you did that. It was so surreal because uh, I think my ego was such that I thought, like, no one knows more about how this place works than me. You right. know, I was here for 12 and a half years. I was head writer. I was an update anchor. There's no underbelly of this place that I don't understand, except then you look, you do it from a host side and you realize, oh, the one thing I always underestimated is how hard it is to be a host, mostly just because you're so busy the whole time. There's so yeah. many things to do. And, you know, I mostly retroactively felt all this shame about the times that I shit talked hosts behind their back, <laughs> you know, uh, because someone would call you in and say, you know, that sketch you wrote, they don't like this joke. And you would just in your head think, oh, they don't understand comedy. And then, <laughs> but then, you know, and you're on the host side and all of a sudden you realize, I don't really love this joke. <laughs> and you know, right. you know that you're going to tell them. And, and then, uh, uh, you know, the ironic uh, outcome of it is they're going to go mutter about you behind their back. But it was, um, so it was a really, especially having worked there as a writer, it was the worst week. And then it was absolutely the most fun I'd ever had on a Saturday there. Um, you should have, you should have gone in and done all the things that you hated when host did. Like you should yeah. have come in with three of your own writers and been like, we've written our own stuff. We did like three things. And then every time they pitched me an idea, like lay my idea on top of it. Uh, <laughs> Because I stopped doing on Tuesday night. I was just talking to Jost about this. Like, I think that you grow into not wanting to meet the host ahead of time. I, I think you find a comfort where you think, I don't want to explain on Tuesday what I'm thinking of writing for them because a couple things could happen. One, they could say, I don't like that idea. And then you feel bad writing it. Or they could say, oh my God, that's so funny. I should also do this. And then you feel in, like you almost have to put their idea in whether or not it fits. Uh, so I just stopped meeting with hosts. But when I went back, you know, writers wanted to, you know, meet with you. And it was lovely because I got to meet a lot of young writers and people whose stuff I like. But, you know, they'd say, what do you think about this idea? And I would do the, I would do exactly what I would want me to do. And I'd say, whatever you think, just write it. However yeah. you think, I will be on board. Um, but ultimately then when that was over, I was like, I think I just spent four hours, like literally wasted four hours because I, I gave no guidance to anyone in my efforts to be, uh, you know, not a speed bump for the process. Did you pull off the after party? Cause you have two small kids. You're on a different body clock. No, it was, I went, my, my wife went home, my parents and my brother had come. And, and so we went, it also was a little bit like, um, a 20th college reunion versus the five. Yeah. The five's <laughs> the best one. It gets right. worse every year after that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and I felt like, Again, maybe it was, uh, I, I also, you know, again, I feel like I'm really heydaying it here. Like, I felt like we went a little harder than the kids these days. Either that or they might be going harder not at the party. Like, they might be like, I'm going to go. I'm not going to go to the SNL after party. Right. Um, but it was like, it was not, uh, it was like at a Mexican restaurant and felt a little like um, not quite, not the, the joyousness uh, that I remember. As an SNL historian. The Eddie, the Eddie episode. What was yeah. your take? First of all, you didn't, it's something that it, you'd always wondered would happen probably when you were there yeah. for an entire, almost a decade. Never, but then you figure like, oh, that'll never happen. Never happened. And then it actually happened. Did you, were you even thinking leading up to the episode that it wasn't going to happen? 
Kind of. And then, you know, I think my first reaction once it started, uh, I don't know if you felt this way, was just that relief. Uh, because again, his at the SNL 40th, it was like you couldn't quite tell what his vibe was, right? He like went out, kind of, it kept fainting towards doing yeah, he, more. He wouldn't commit to it. Yeah, so that was it. It was like, will he commit to it? And so when the minute it started, it was like this huge relief of like, oh, he's committing to it. And then it was just that realization of one, he's the best that ever did it. And yep. two, you kind of forgot like, oh, all of his characters are in a good mood. Like, I think you think of his characters as yelling at people or raising their voice and they're just all so happy. And in that like cake boss sketch where he made a bad cake and he was so, he knew it was a bad cake, but he had a smile on his face. And so it was just the nicest, uh, I felt it was like the nicest 90 minutes. And then I thought, I think that elf scene was maybe the last sketch and uh, probably my favorite of all of them, uh, just because it was like white hot, pure Eddie Murphy. I was nervous because I just didn't want it to go terribly. Yeah. And that it, you know, there's an alternate, episode where it's just awful and it's like oh man let's never talk about that again but it was the opposite it was actually yeah. really cool that he did it and you know it just makes you wonder like what was this guy sitting on the last 30 years where he where he still has all this talent and ability to do this but just yeah. was like nah i'm gonna shut that switch off and then he could just turn the switch back on it's kind of surreal also, it was surreal how well all his characters age. Like right. the whatever was the, the 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 core idea of what was funny about all his characters was still funny. I mean, which I guess makes sense because Gumby was exactly as insane an idea now as it was then. It wasn't like, well, you have to remember in the you know in the eighties, a lot of people were talking about Gumby. It's like no, uh, <laughs> right? So. Uh, yeah, it was just a, it was just a delight. And you know, again, I I keep asking cast members and writers who were there uh, about it because it, I'm as desperate for intel as you are. And the nicest thing is, everybody said it was like watching, you know, a fighter work his way back into game shape, ring you know, shape. Yeah, a little little tentative at the table, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know. It, calling everybody by name, you know, it, it's a team effort. Everybody's excited. You know, the writers each, you know, again, they had to assign different writers to like take on these old, old characters. And of course everyone's doing it with, um, you know, incredible reverence. And I think he, everybody felt really appreciated and, uh, it just seemed like, I don't know. It was such a, it was such an A plus. When, uh, when did you make the decision at what, what, what year of your show where you started to really lean in on using your writers and bringing them on and trying to turn them into characters. Well, it's weird because we, I think immediately out of the gates, we tried it and it didn't work because we thought, Oh, we'll bring them on like update characters because coming from the update desk, I felt, Oh, well, you know, one of my strengths is being like a straight man to somebody like Bill or Bobby or Kate. And the reality was it was really hard for a writer who wasn't known by the audience to come out as a big character and, and have people be invested in it. So, and we actually like, you know, pretty, it was one of the few notes we got from the network in the early days was, hey, we'd really like it to be a little bit more your show. Yeah. So then we leaned into that. But ultimately what happened is we started bringing our writers in to like give commentary as themselves. Uh, I would say the only writer who really excelled playing characters was Connor O'Malley. 
um, you know, who social uh, media legend, social media legend. I mean, again, uh, Vine star. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but Connor was the uh, was unique in his ability to sort of score as a character. Um, but other than that, most he became your Chris friends. Elliott, basically, like what Letterman did. I mean, had again, way back if when. you ever it should be noted if uh, he would if Connor was on, he'd probably want to talk about Chris Elliott bits. Right. More than anything else. I mean, most comedy writers who get on a late night show are very disappointed at first to find out it's not Letterman 1986. Right. <laughs> or like well, Conan 92. You know, that's, I think they all, uh, and by the way, I don't blame them, but they all kind of think, hey, so we can do that really like whimsical, um, I don't know, meta comedy. And it's a lot harder to pull it off now. Well, yeah, I mean, I was in that situation with Kimmel for the first year. The the show you think you're joining versus the show it becomes, once everybody realizes the show it becomes is going to be the show, it, it's interesting how that all plays out. But, you know, almost every time the show that it becomes, that happens for a reason. I think for you, right. you had that daily show shadow. The show you knew you should do, you couldn't really do because it it just would have been too close to the Daily Show, and you kind of had to wait it out and try to do, you know, not you behind the desk all the time, stuff like that. But then you eventually grew into that, and that's when the show took off. Yeah, it was weird because Shoemaker and I, uh, Mike Shoemaker, our producer, like I remember when it first started, we'd be like, "Oh my god, can you imagine how hard it must be to do the Daily Show and have to talk about the news every day?" <laughs> and then right. all of a you realize, you know, we would do a few things like that. And that would be the thing people would say, Hey, I really like that. Um, and it was, you know, so it was kind of against our, our better judgment in the beginning that we thought, Oh, we'll never do that. And then, you know, again, ultimately I think these shows, like you said, like they, they ultimately dovetail and, and meet up with the, the skill set of the people and especially the host. Do people know how close it was to you doing and, ESPN late night show. I guess we can talk about that now. It's been a million years later. It was, we talked about it. Yeah. You were, uh, you were counsel during that time. Uh, I was like an unpaid conciliary. You were, you were very, I would say that is a excellent definition of what I was. Yeah. It was right around the same time as I got offered late night. Um, ESPN uh, sort of reached out talking about doing a late, cause I hosted a, a couple of ESPYs and, and had, uh, had good, uh, relationships with everybody over there and those things. I told you not to do this second time. Yeah, and you were right. Uh but it was you know what I'll say I'll say this I learned a very valuable lesson. If you're gonna learn not to go back to your greatest hits, like the SP is the softest way of doing it. Right. Like because of that, I learned not to do the correspondence dinner or the Golden Globes or any like so at least it was at the SPs and because the first SPs had gone well, uh ESPN let us do whatever we wanted, which of course, whenever you let comedy writers do whatever they want, it's um, uh, noticeably worse. <laughs> well, I remember at that point in time, whenever that was, when you almost, what was that like? Probably 2011 range. Well, 11 and 12 were my S12 times. Yeah. It was, it was right around the time when I had a lot of sway at ESPN and they were asking me about it. And I was just like, Seth's like the most undervalued guy right now. Like, if you were ever going to do this, do it with him. But I could not figure out the scheduling part. I couldn't figure out, like, for you, because I wanted you to succeed. And they were like, what's your biggest concern? I said this to you, too. Like, I just, I don't see how you pull off the regularity that a late night show needs. Because everything I knew about late night habits 
dating back to even when I worked on Kimmel's show is that the audience just wants to know. They turn the TV on. It's 1130. It's 12. Right. It's 1230. There's the person I'm used to seeing. I'm in my bed. uncomfortable. Don't take me by too much surprise, but Keep me, keep me intrigued. Keep me interested. And if you don't have that day to day where you're not there or week to week, whatever it is. And it's like, I thought Seth was going to be there. Why is there a college basketball game on? Yeah. You're kind of dead out of the gate. Especially because the energy, it's one thing if you, if, you know, because of NFL football and NBC, it pushes late night and maybe you like Fallon's on for 11 more minutes. So, but it's still a late night show as opposed to like college basketball and screaming fans and things you don't want to see at that hour. The other thing was that, and I I think it was the right instinct, which is if you were going to do a late night comedy show about sports, it had to be up to date. And that was, uh, I remember it was presented to me that it would have to be a live show. And especially now with children, the worst thing in the world would be if I was doing a live show on a sports network at midnight. Uh, even if it was out of New York. So uh, it was it was certainly an interesting offer. And, and uh, the people over there at the time, I, I really liked. But uh, it was nice that sort of NBC sort of started sniffing around at the same time. And it probably was, didn't hurt, by the way, that there was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad ESPN could help as kind of the, the second <laughs> second suitor. That was a really fun time at ESPN because I do feel like. You know, I, I look back fondly at that year just because we were doing stuff like trying to hire you for a show and trying to get Nate yeah. Silver and they just, they were su- succeeding in every conceivable way and actually spending the money on good things, you know, and like paying for 30 for yeah. 30 and stuff like that. It was just, I just have, there's like a two year window there. I'm like, man, that was a really fun place to work. It was interesting, you know, because it was also, uh, there was like the saturation of the market. Like there were only so many homes. Right. And you just realized that again, a lot happened with cable and and how people for it. But, you know, I think the other thing about those years was it was the crest of ESPN being everywhere. And ultimately at some point you can't be in more houses when you're in all the houses. True. Good point. You did the ESPYs for two years with Mora. We should probably talk about her for a second. Cause that was one of the sad outcomes of 2020. Yeah. Um, Maura Mant, executive producer, she uh, passed away, I guess, end of February. It was right yeah, before the right pandemic before hit, basically. Happened. And uh, she was a, uh, I mean, I feel like it's okay to say that she was like a bulldog. She was everything you want out of a producer in that she was so tenacious and especially in advocating for the host. I mean, there were times you know because she would sort of go back and forth between the network and and me and uh and she just took such good care of myself and the writing staff and she genuinely wanted it to be a great show and you know over the years the espies has had some really exceptionally good shows and it shouldn't work as well as it does um but i you know if you even just like pulled out the comedy bits from the last 20 years of the espies uh, I'd put them up against any other award show. Uh, and it was, you know, and the other fun thing about doing that show that she understood was uh, it. nobody took it that seriously because no one in the audience genuinely cared that much whether or not they won. Right. I, I think the thing I always appreciated about her, and I've, I've always clicked well with people like this, is she was all in 100% at the craziest level of trying to, make something succeed. So like she treated the ESPYs like it was the single most important 
two hours anybody was doing on television that year. Whether that was true was debatable, but she really treated it that way. And I've always, I've just always enjoyed working with people like that who were just like, for lack of a better word, insane about the work and available at all times. And every year you'd see her after the ESPYs and she, it was like seeing LeBron after a triple overtime, you know, game seven, where it's like, whoo, oh, and she's wearing a cocktail dress, but she's <laughs> completely, you know, she has no energy at all. And she's smoking. And um, I don't know. I just, I really liked working with her. She also, you know, it should be noted, it was two hours of her year. And the rest of the time she was working contacts and relationships and yeah. her ability the day before to say, you, uh, what about Blake Griffin? Could I can get Blake Griffin to shoot a thing, and that was really amazing. Yeah, um, I don't know if I ever told you the story because we were, I think we were staying, we were all staying in the W Hotel um, uh, in LA, and I went to the gym the morning of the ESPYS, and Mora was just they had the treadmill jacked up at like a forty-five degree angle, and it was like as fast as it could go, as high as it could go, and she was just running. I was like, that's how, that's like Mora all the time. <laughs> Like when she's not that, that's what's happening in her head, which is like just up to here and like running as fast as she could. And, uh, and she did it, you know, she genuinely did it to get the best possible outcome for that show. She was one of the 10 most important ESPN people when I was there because they had, there was no replacement for her. She brought, it was, she was like Liam Neeson and Taken. She brought a a particular set of skills. Yeah. Nobody else had them. She had all of these connections to show business and all of these and athletes and all of these different people. And it's not like you were like, how do we, you know, she passes away tragically. And then it's like, well, how do you replace her? It's like, well, you just don't, it's not like yeah. you're getting another head coach for an NFL team. It's like, there's no way to replace. You'd need five people to replace all the things that she was doing. It was funny too, how often, you know, I remember my, I think my first year I shot something with Peyton Manning and I I just like he I you know again I'm probably putting words in his mouth but the uh, you always would say like how did you end up what thanks for doing this he's like oh I couldn't say no to Mora and like like across the sporting world like you never uh I just feel like there are very few people that across all the sports um you know who can't you know weren't I think just out of a place of like work the relationship and and people cared about him uh she got uh uh, tons of favors every year and and made the show so good well, she, she was in that classic wheelhouse of you had to return her call because you wanted to, but you also knew if you didn't return her call, she was going to call again and get you on the phone and it was going to happen. So you might as well yeah. call her back the first time. Otherwise, and then she'd be mad if you didn't call, you know, the, after the second time. So I don't know. I just, it's hard for somebody to earn respect like that from hundreds of people that are in their lives where it's like, she calls like, fuck up, Maura's on the phone. I got to go. Like I'd be with my wife and the phone would ring and I would just show my wife. I'd be like, I got to go. <laughs> Shoemaker and I, if she got Shoemaker's number and there were definitely days where one of us would hold up a phone and, and the other would understand that the next hour was- You would uh, know right away. Uh, she came, I should know that I think one of the last times I saw her, she came to the, uh, when I hosted the Globes, she came to the after party because we invited her and it was- uh, I always, I mean, she was the first person who asked me to host something. And yeah. uh, I learned, you again, those are such unique things. But, you know, as different as an ESPYs is from a Golden Globes, like you do learn a process uh, of I just like, when do you write the jokes? Well, how do you try the jokes out? Like, how do you do the bits? And and so I always uh, felt in debt to her for, for that. She was really good at, 
um, jumping on somebody as their arrow was pointing up and getting, getting in a little bit early and then rightfully being super proud as their career would kind of ascend and go to a couple other levels and kind of not that she was responsible for it, but just being like, I'm just so happy it's working out in this way for this person because I felt like this was going to happen years ago when I asked them to do whatever. And she was usually right. Kimmel and LeBron did it together uh, before. 06. Yeah. Before LeBron did SNL, do you think? Or or right Yeah, it was was before. Yeah. Because I I mean, that was a, I mean, that was a, I think the first time. And now, of course, I think it's pretty obvious um, how funny LeBron is, but that was, seemed very bold at the time and, and was such a cool choice. The thing that was the Blake Griffin being funny was something I didn't fully realize until he did yeah. a couple of Grantland things, but then he was on the ESPYs with Drake, I think in 2014. Cause I always had a thing about athlete funny. When people yeah. say athletes are funny, they're not actually funny. They're just funny compared to other athletes. But then there's a couple of athletes who are actually legitimately funny or, and Blake was one of those guys where it's like, Oh, this guy's legitimately funny. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, that it's not a it's not a long list. I think Shaq is legitimately funny, but it I think there's a whole funny side of Shaq that we probably don't see as the public. Yeah. But uh, um it's not Blake, a long list. I uh Blake and Kevin Love were really funny in this basketball lockout thing we did. And I meant to text uh Neil Brennan today that uh they were both mentioned as having uh very hard to trade contracts on your podcast this morning. <laughs> oh, that's true. Well th- I mean, everybody over $30 million is, is, uh, it turns out like that being secretly funny doesn't help, uh, that much, uh, to help with a, with a big contract (laughs) or, or maybe it makes teams want to pay you more because they like having it around the room. And it's like, I don't know. I feel like this will be a more fun situation. How do you think about the whole, like you grew up in this certain era on SNL in the mid two thousands and all of these people from this specific era are all doing these great things across the board and not, not just people like hater, but even like behind the scenes people and, and people like Mike Shore and all this stuff. Like yeah. when you look back at that mid two thousands and all the people you were involved with in some way, like, did you have any idea that was going to happen in the mid two thousands? I think by like, Oh, seven, Oh eight, there was a sense. Cause it was a guy, the cast got really small and the shows got really good. And I think that only happens when that small cast is as good as they were. And so there was a set, and also most of us were at the same place in our life, which I think was really helpful. Like most of us were single, we were around the same age, we hung out a lot together outside the show. And so, yeah, I mean, cause I think it was at one point maybe nine. And, and when you think it was Sandberg, Forte, Fred, Sudeikis, Hader, Keenan Wig, Maya Poehler, me. I mean, that's a, I mean, it, it's really stunning uh, uh, how, how well and how many shows have just. Uh, but then you also have all the behind the scenes people too. Yeah. I mean, that Simon all Rich, go on to do uh, all kinds of stuff. Mulaney, when you think about the fact that John Mulaney was not on camera and is now as, I mean, as good a stand up comedian as there is in the universe. Alan um, Yang was there for a year. Uh, Yang wasn't there. Oh, he, I uh, thought he wrote for SNL for a year. No? Yang, I think, was at uh, Carson Daly. Uh, we didn't have Yang. Not well, when maybe I was he was there. there. It felt like yeah. he was there. Gotcha. I'm going to give yeah. him credit anyway, even though he wasn't there. A wonderful guy. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a nuts group. Paula Pell, who's really funny and, and John Lutz who writes for us now. And I mean, yeah, it's a, it was a very, uh, very deep, uh, I wasn't that like, it wasn't that deep a bench cause there weren't that many of us, but it was a very strong group and you know, the lonely Island, the fact that Akiva and Yorma were there with Andy. Andy now majors movie streaming star. So did of, you see the- Palm Springs? I thought it was good. I had them on. I I loved right. I loved what they did because I was so worried it was going to be a Groundhog Day ripoff, and it no. wasn't. I really I think the nice thing about those uh, a movie with that structure is um, I feel like this is going to make me feel like curmudgeonly. I I like an eighty five minute movie with no B plot. Like just give me two leads that I care about. I don't need to see like other people finding love because they were adjacent to this right. love story. <laughs> Uh, and I just thought it was great. And, uh, Emiliati was so charming as well. I, I mean, I, I, I sort of live in perpetual charm of Sandberg. So I, it was nice to see the two of them together. Yeah. We did Caddyshack for the rewatchables last week. It's like 97 minutes and it just flies by and it's over. Yeah. It's, and then it's the golf course blows up and it's done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was, it was just refreshing to see it. So what do your next five years look like? I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of went into, I remember when this show started thinking, um, Oh, let's just get through the first five. And now we're February was six. And I mean, hopefully just, you know, continue to do this. I'm really happy with the gig and I, I like the people we work with and, you know, it's nice to do little side things with people like Bill and Fred and and John like documentary now. Um, So hopefully like that, you know, finding space to do something other than late night, but ultimately I, I don't have any complaints. Well, you have two small kids. That's like having a torn ACL and a yeah. herniated disc in your back as an athlete. You're I just that you're never the same. They also, uh, <laughs> I feel like when I go back to the office, cause they now are, I feel like, especially the four-year-old is acutely aware that everything I said I had to go to work for, I've been able to do at home. And right. So now she's suspicious of you. <laughs> yeah. yeah He's just spends the whole day saying like, wait, okay. All right. <laughs> but the ratings were the same, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'll see. That must have been awesome, though, because I know it's been awesome for us mostly to to be at home with our kids a lot. But to have that with two young kids when you would have been on the go and at work all the time, like it's just all this time you never would have had. Yeah. And especially out of necessity, we had to film everything earlier because, you know, basically I was just sending it via in-home Internet to, you know, to basically the graphics people. And and you just had to build in more time to make sure you could get it to the networks in time to put it on TV. And so most days I was done by 4.30 or 5 as opposed to 8, 8.30. And I never finished the show before my kids are in bed. So it's been, you know, I, I know it's that weird thing of constantly having to couch. Things have been, there have been a, a silver lining in this awful time we've lived through. But, um, you know, I, I, it has been a special time with our kids. All right, before we go, uh, any last words for Tom Brady? Your guy who kicked your ass for two decades. I'm not upset he's gone. I mean, I'm. Uh, I wish him nothing but the best. Again, he uh, only met him that really that one week when he was just a delightful SNL person to be around. First uh, of all, I don't believe you. I don't think you wish him the best. I think he caused a lot of pain and heartache yeah. for you and the other Steelers. No, fans. but that that reflects badly on me. Like I now, I wouldn't wish him the best if he was still on the Patriots, and I wish nothing uh, but ill. Uh, to Cam Newton now, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I realize that that is a bad reflection on me as a person, as right. opposed to anything bad that, uh, Cam or Tom used to do. I feel like to me, Tom is, um, 
you know, one of those uh, people who worked for Trump and then left and wrote a book. And uh, and now I'm trying to, you know, accept that he's seen the error in his ways. <laughs> so now you're directing your uh, sports hatred for Cam Newton now. It's hard. He's, he's now the new guy. Charming, so but again, you know, I, I would like to say there's a very easy way for Cam Newton and the Patriots and any of the Patriots to escape my iron, which is just to be a mediocre football team for a year <laughs> or two. Everybody else does it, just a year or two, so I can start feeling bad for them. But uh, as of right now, what yeah. are you expecting from Ben Roethlisberger? Good things. I mean, I, there's there's I nothing. Mean, do you really expect good things? Like deep down, really? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I do. I, I I'm. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, again, eight and eight with Doc Hodges and Mason Rudolph, right? So I kind of, Fair. If, if we had, if we'd gone four and 12, I wouldn't feel that good. But I do think we have a really good defense. And I, I do expect good things. And there's so little, there's so little to be optimistic about right now. Like I'm about to go back to a studio with no audience. <laughs> right. <laughs> Part of me is like, just give me the one thing. I mean, how, if, if, I mean, you would just be gutted if football fell apart, right? If all of a sudden they were they called it off. I'm I still have my guard up. I have not done any yeah. fantasy football homework yet or anything. Yeah. I just think they're gonna plow through it. Yeah. And if if there are COVID um people that pop up, they'll just kind of move them aside, like like on the injury cart when they're carrying an injury guy off. <laughs> right. It'll be the big picture equivalent of that where it's like yeah, they lost 10 guys. Wheel them out. Bring in 10 more and yeah. just keep the money train going, I think is going to be the attitude, which is a bummer. Um, but it's that's how we know the sausage is made with football. They don't care about their players. They never have. Right. So I don't I don't see why this would change. No, my conflicted feelings about the NFL are made no easier by this moment we're living 100%. through. 100%. Yet I cannot, it, I would be lying through my teeth if I said uh, I would be gutted. I, I mean, I would be so gutted if it fell apart. Listen, if we were going to quit the NFL, it would have happened already. Exactly. This That's is kind of the terrible spouse we have. But <laughs> I will say, though, like, I've been shocked by the baseball thing, and I, I don't really know how to reconcile that. And I know you're a Red Sox fan. And, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's because we won four titles Mm -hmm. the team's bad. It sucks to watch baseball without fans, but this is the first Red Sox season of my life where I, I'm just not watching. Yeah. I, I have no I'm idea. literally not watching at all. I barely know what's going on and I don't really feel bad about it. Yeah. It does feel again, we got really spoiled and all the itches were scratched. And now like just the combination of, of Mookie and how it looks and how they're playing it, maybe it's helpful to take a breath and 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 just uh, let them win us back. The Mookie thing's making it worse for me. It's like pouring gasoline on an open wound because I would, yeah. you know, it was so horrible when it was happening, and now he's doing great, and the Dodger fans love him, and I have to fucking live here and see the t-shirt jerseys, and <laughs> it's just every day it's worse. And then the yeah. Red Sox are sellers already. They've already traded two relievers, including their closers, and they're acting like they're the Kansas City Royals, and it's like, what happened? We yeah. we used to spend top five most money, and that and now we're the Royals. Where, where did we go wrong? <sighs> well, you, but you are. Uh, um, I mean, obviously, you're engaged with it. Uh, if the NBA has done a very nice job. NBA has been great, but I, yeah. I think the NBA thing has almost shown that fans, as part of the TV spectacle, were probably a little overrated. Yeah, you know, where the only time I really felt it was yesterday when Luca made that shot. 
thinking like, oh man, that would have been cool if Dallas fans were there Mm -hmm. uh, in Sunday's game. But for the most part, they've been able to replicate what it sounds like to have a crowd. And in a way that makes you think like, oh yeah, this was kind of, a lot of this was forced anyway. Like a lot of the musical cues, (laughs) a lot of kind of telling the fans how to behave. Yeah. Whereas like with the stuff I grew up with where the crowd, we basically had an organ and the yeah. organist played some fight songs and other than that, it was just fans applauding and booing and that's it. And now everything is kind of orchestrated. So the fact that they could replicate that, I think was kind of weirdly disturbing. Yeah. I was watching, uh, as I was watching the Celtics series at no point did I think I'm, I'm less, I care less. I cared the right. same. I felt like that was an accomplishment. Well, ironically, you're going to probably feel it with your show when you're back in the studio with, with no yeah. people reacting. I don't, I've watched some of the Bill Maher shows and it's so funny how he's trying to do his thing and he's got, it's almost like in wrestling, like the professional wrestlers <laughs> when they do the entrances and they're playing yeah. off the fans who aren't there. And he's just, he's like, I'm just going to do it the same way I've always done it, but there's no people there. And he's turning the left and the right. And he's looking at yeah. like a plant. It'll be weird. I mean, it's one thing, like not having an audience in your attic is fine because there was never an audience in your attic. So I think that will be the weird thing is going back to the room there was an audience in and figuring out, because I feel like we did figure out how to perform without an audience in our, you know, makeshift studios. Uh, The real question will be, how do you perform without an audience in the room where you're facing the empty seats they used to sit in? You'll be fine. What's What's the best movie you watched during the pandemic? Uh, I really liked, uh, Palm Springs, uh, just rewatched Bugsy. Really enjoyed Bugsy. Bugsy. Wow. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, what else did I really like? Um, I feel like I haven't watched a ton. Of, I mean, I may destroy you has been the best thing I've seen. And, uh, and normal people was a really good horny show. Uh, a lot of people that my mom really liked normal people, which I thought yeah. was disturbing. Right. I think it's like that. I think it's like, at one point I, I didn't know. I was like, is this just the OC that I think is classy? Cause they have Irish accents. Am I just, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was better than that. Um, and I got, I'm trying to think of, uh, I like the old guard on Netflix. I thought that was fun times. What else am I missing? What was, what was your big one? What was your, I caught up on stuff. Like I had never watched Ozark. So, Oh yeah. Like a month into the pandemic. I was just mm-hmm. already feeling weird and then cranking out Ozarks and just is going to a dark place. Um, My wife uh, is rewatching, uh, I mentioned this on the show, Dawson's Creek, which is a show I never watched. And uh, I have like, I'm, I'm like, it's jarring to like now find out like how much about sex that show was. I think yeah. I just that had a the envelope. idea of what that show was about. I did. Cause I, I was trying to put, replace all the sports stuff I used to watch, especially in the mornings. Cause I would wake yeah. up, do emails and put some game on that I tipped it up for was doing like Melrose place in its place. First couple of Melrose place, uh, <laughs> MTV, the challenge was throwing that on there. Like anything that was kind of interesting, but not really, but not too interesting. You try to find that wheelhouse, but yeah, I'm running out of stuff. Yeah. It's getting dark. And yeah. And, no good movies are coming out. It's basically all like these straight to videos with, with a few exceptions. And it feels like they're stacking them. They're waiting until like December 
and all of them are right. going to come out at the same time. And it's going to be like, what the fuck? Like, we're going to have a hundred of these. So anyway, <laughs> um, good luck in the Emmys next month. Thanks, buddy. Good luck back in the studio in a couple of weeks. It was good to see you. Don't cut your hair. Uh, <laughs> it's, halfway. It's great. Halfway. We'll talk to Link later about working you and everybody wants some too. Maybe a cameo. Got to rewatch that. That was the best. All right. Good seeing you. Thank you. All right. Great seeing you too. All right. Thanks to Spotify. Thanks to Seth Myers. Thanks to Jonathan Sharks. Thanks to Raja Bell and Logan Murdoch for their little cameo at the top of the pod. Don't forget about the rewatchables, which we had 40 year old virgin. That's up there already. And then Wednesday night, dangerous minds as part of teen movie week on the ringer.com. I hope you're enjoying all the pieces that we did for that. And the bracket vote for your favorite movies, go to the ringer social feed right now and we will see you on Thursday night looking forward to it